0: Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Bator of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. (laughs) And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. (laughs) Oh my god, this is the first episode of a brand new series. Rihanna, tell them what we're doing. We are doing a series on the greatest and the baddest villains in all of Star Trek. And today we are covering the villains in the original series so we've got some pretty (laughs) epic villains coming up here ashlyn would you like to tell everyone which episodes we watched and kind of go over the process of how we chose these villains yeah i would love to so we had a lot to discuss because pretty much every episode in the original series has a villain in it and sometimes they're like a cloud (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes it's abraham lincoln so (laughs) and half the time they're computers Yes, yeah, exactly. So it was mostly about trying to eliminate the weaker villains and really get to the meat of what makes someone truly evil and what makes them a real adversary for the Enterprise and our amazing crew. So we had some hilarious questions we were asking each other like... Is Da Vinci a villain? Is God a villain? Was Apollo a villain? Was Cybok a villain? (laughs) (laughs) All important questions. Yeah, important questions. So the ones we narrowed down to, so I'm gonna say the episode and then also the villain that we ended up choosing. So we started off with The Man Trap with Nancy Crater, Where No Man Has Gone Before with Gary Mitchell, The Enemy Within with Evil Kirk, Conscience of the King with Kudos, Squire of Gothos with Trelane, Space Seed with Khan, The Enterprise Incident with the Romulan Commander, and of course, the movies Wrath of Khan and Into Darkness for Khan. For Khan. (laughs) We do do a lot for Khan. (laughs) Yeah. So a big part of the discussion that we had, that Rhiannon and I had, and that we would like to have on the pod right now, is about what makes a villain and what makes an antagonist compelling to watch on the screen. So Rihanna, what for you, what are some of the most important qualities that a villain should have in these epic stories? So I think that they have to have a strong enough background that I understand their motivation i would like to at least know why they are doing what they are doing which honestly that eliminates a lot of original series villains because a lot of them are just sort of the villain of the week so we wanted to make sure that they have a strong backstory or something that we can at least understand them better bonus points if i get sympathy for them or if they're complexly written to the point where i feel like I'm very intrigued by them and may even feel bad for them at some point, point. and that's a huge thing that differentiates the good villains from the greatest villains. Another thing for me with villains is that I want to see how the main cast changes because of this villain. I want to see what actions they are forced to take because of this villainous intent, and I think that that's really important and something we'll see in these episodes and with the villains we chose. So, Ashlyn, what about you? What are your... Those boxes have to be checked when you think about villains. I mean, you kind of already said everything I was thinking. I think the sympathy point that you mentioned is really important. Not just that they have a fleshed-out backstory, but also the way that it's done. Because sometimes a movie or a narrative will show the villain's whole life before this conflict, or it will be strategically dropped in the plotline ahead of time. But what's important to me is that it's done tastefully, And is not done in a cheesy or dumb or short-sighted way. So finding that fine line between building up our protagonist as well as antagonist. Like, for example, one villain that I always thought could have been much cooler but ended up being a little lame is Whiplash in Iron Man 3, Mm -hmm. if our listeners have seen that. I think he's someone who's tried to portray it as a sympathetic villain, but it just ends up being like he gets 10 minutes of screen time and he's like whipping cars at the end. And it's just just not very exciting. And so for me, the villains that – have really stuck around in my brain and have made an impact on me are like Moriarty. I mean, Moriarty in every adaptation of Sherlock. And in- maybe some adaptations of Star Trek? <laughs> oh! <laughs> Technically! Oh. Yeah, okay. We, um Question mark might talk about Moriarty next week, yeah. actually. But yeah, so Moriarty, he's amazing in the TV show. Andrew Scott in that role is incredible. The Moriarty in the movies, in the Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr. are amazing. The book Moriarty's amazing also the Joker in the Batman series is seriously one of the best villains I think Batman in general has a lot of really good villains yes and then Thanos too is a villain who I really like as well as Voldemort which sounds so funny to be listing all these characters in order um But all of these villains to me are really iconic and are just as legendary as their opposites, as the protagonists who they're fighting against. Rihanna, what about you? Do you have any villains that stick in your head as being some of the greats? Well, I also really appreciate the ones that start as villains, kind of like The Winter Soldier, where you think, oh, this is going to be the main villain of the story, and then it's not because you realize that it's Bucky being manipulated. And I really like those changes. Kind of, I think we can, I'm excited to talk about this in Into Darkness as well, where there's sort of multiple villains going on and multiple stories being told where you are sort of being pulled around and trying to figure out okay but if this is the villain why do i feel bad for them or why do i understand their intentions so much i can't think of other examples right now but i'd also say someone like umbridge is a great villain Mm. because they're not the main villain i mean she's not murdering people but she's still like torturing kids like she's literally terrible And people often hate her more than they hate Voldemort in Harry Potter. And so that really shows that she's written really well and she's just done so well that she sparks so much hatred. I mean, similarly to in... Game of Thrones, I feel like I hate Cersei Lannister more than I hate all of the White Walkers, even though the White Walkers are sort of more the stereotypical villains. I think Cersei or, you know, some of those characters in Game of Thrones are more dangerous and more villainous because we get to see the darkness of them. Yeah, it's sort of that multi-tiered villain level. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And of all the villains that you're talking about, the quality that they have that makes them god tier is that they are absolutely ruthless and are not afraid to cause damage at the drop of a hat they are also people who are incredibly intelligent and so that is i think also a very important quality is you want a villain who's really smart so it makes it actually interesting and a real challenge to push our favorite characters through into fighting them or whatever is happening in the story. Yeah, that's such a good point. And something that I also think I've been watching a ton of anime and that does really well too is to show you – how far these characters will go to get what they want and how ruthless they can be. A lot of anime has incredibly written villains because they give them enough time on the screen as well as enough psychological sort of understanding that there's some villains I really respect even though I hate them, you know? And so I think that is also a really fun distinction and something that I think we'll find here in these episodes and a reason we chose a lot of these episodes. I mean, you can't help but respect someone like Khan even though he's awful yeah well okay rihanna so this leads me right into our next segment which we will be continuing for the rest of this series rihanna if you could run away and pull a marlene mcgyvers and run away with any of the villains in original series who would you run away with i have to say the romulan commander from the enterprise incident I knew you were going to say that. uh, First of all, I mean, I'm gay, so, like, (laughs) there's not a lot of female villains, I've realized. I definitely wouldn't run away with someone like Nancy. (laughs) I just don't have enough salt in my body for her. (laughs) And just so you listeners know, we could also choose from any of the original series, like Ashlyn said, but I'm still yeah. choosing from one of the episodes we watched, because just seeing her on the screen in the Enterprise incident and the way she's infatuated with Spock, which same, and also she is very strong and capable, and also she's a female commander, and she's breaking these stereotypes – that I really like, but also has this sort of feminine side that she's not afraid to show. Really super amazing, and I'd be like, yeah, sure, (laughs) I'll quit Starfleet and run away with you, that sounds pretty good, like, she offers a lot of really amazing things, like, I could get my own command, you know, sounds like, so... I just have to be as smart as Spock, which is <laughs> a tough ask, but, you know, <laughs> I try my best. I was going to say, you probably would just have to be Vulcan, honestly, and I think she'd be into you. <laughs> Literally, she just is so into Vulcans, especially Spock. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ashlyn, what about you? I think I have an idea, but I'm not sure. Oh, man. It's hard to watch Space Seed and to not say Khan, because Ricardo Montalbán, we're going to talk about him a lot later in this episode, but... Yeah, Khan is my answer. Okay, I knew it. (laughs) Yeah, I would be Marlene MacGyver's, and I would go with Khan. Yeah, I said it. I'd betray Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) You want me down chilling on this planet, creating a new life and a new world? Okay, I'll do it. Yeah, (laughs) Khan's going to protect me, so yeah and his strong arms that's all you need <laughs> <laughs> exactly and his real chest <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Any, anyway <laughs> so yeah hold on to your bootstraps everyone because we're going to talk about con later on but the first character we're going to discuss is our original villain essentially we talked about him in our pilot series this is Gary Mitchell this is from the episode where no man has gone before but now we're going to be focusing on Gary himself and his new powers as he's discovering them <laughs> yes yes good old marble eyes <laughs> <laughs> So starting off, a particularity that I think is really important about Gary Mitchell as a villain is that he is Kirk's friend, and he starts out this way. And these are some of the villains that are my very favorite to watch because we get to see their transformation. We get to see them turn and sort of enter the quote-unquote dark side, you know? And I think that this is a fascinating way it's played out because really, Gary turns sides once he gets power. So it's clear that there was something under the surface that always craved power, but came to the forefront when he is imbued with these incredible powers that are growing exponentially, pretty much by the minute they're growing. So it's really insane, the kind of power that he's absorbing and becoming. But to see him completely... Change over the course of this episode and turn into less and less someone that Kirk knows and that Kirk spent his academy days with. It's very interesting to watch. Yeah, well, and just to remind our listeners, if you haven't seen this episode in a while, the Enterprise is chilling and suddenly they get zapped by like a lightning bolt (laughs) (laughs) when they're investigating the wreckage of a different ship. And it turns out that Gary Mitchell and Dr. Danner get zapped and They are zapped because they have the highest ESP (laughs) of everyone on the ship, which is described as being able to have some kind of foreknowledge about the future. Like, you can predict what cards are going to be overturned in a deck and things like that and so once they're zapped then boom exponentially their esp power increases to the maximum to god levels (laughs) and what i thought was interesting is that when spock and kirk are talking about the previous ship that was also struck by this esp lightning the captain was hit with it and they did not go crazy and turn into a god and try to control everything. They were just trying to figure out what was wrong with their ship and trying to survive and trying to save the crew. So this bolt of lightning does not (laughs) necessarily make you evil. It exactly what you were saying rihanna for gary mitchell particularly it enhances his desire for power and desire for control and so once he realizes exactly how powerful he is he doesn't use it for good he uses it to try to take over the enterprise and kill his best friend It's insane. And I think it's also very telling because Dr. Danner is hit with this same power and she doesn't turn evil either. And so it really does show the character of a person to see him be like, at one point he literally said, soon I'll squash you like insects. Like, he very much goes from reminding Kirk of his academy days and them having great chats and hanging out, and apparently they've been friends for years to someone that Kirk can't even recognize. I think maybe it comes from a part of him already feeling superior because something that really bothered me about his response to these powers was that he accepted them right away and sort of believed that he was meant for them. So it's pretty much like if a white supremacist got these powers, like that's terrifying. So he acts like, oh yeah, of course the world gave this to me because I deserve it because I am better. And as his powers start getting more powerful, the more his ego is also inflated. And so it's a really bad circumstance because it is growing so much in him, this thirst for hunger. I mean, I'm sure it's very difficult to resist these godlike powers, it would be really amazing to have these powers, but my first thought wouldn't be, oh, I'm gonna squish my friends like the insects (laughs) that they are, I will be the god now, like, no! So I'm wondering, because as you've mentioned, he has this very close friendship with Kirk, I think they've known each other for 15 years, and... I love the scene in Sick Bay where Gary is talking to Kirk right after he's been zapped, and he's saying that he feels fine. As you said, Rihanna, he's very complimentary of Kirk and talking about his Academy days, calling him walking books, which is one of my favorite lines ever. Same. And at the same time, he's also manipulating him and kind of buttering him up and then turning it into threats at the end of this whole paragraph that he's saying. And I think that Gary probably had a deep-seated or maybe surface-level jealousy of Kirk because, yes, they've been friends for 15 years, but Gary's not a captain. He doesn't have his own ship. He hasn't risen as fast as Kirk has through the chain of command. He's just a helmsman. I think he's a lieutenant. Yeah. So they're the same age, and Kirk has supremely outdone him in his career. And so I'm wondering if this is what is inspiring gary to rise to the top so quickly he thinks to himself in my life i haven't been able to do all these cool things that kirk can do but now with these powers i can do even more i'm wondering if that is maybe some of his motivation it's directly kirk related because these villains can't get enough of kirk (laughs) it seems like yes that is a great thought that hadn't even occurred to me there is a note of jealousy there or envy and Yeah, I think it does form into bitterness for him. He also is very manipulative of Dr. Danner. He also manipulates her and he's trying to get her on his side because she has these powers too and he wants them to rule the world together. But do you even think that, I think that he would still want to be better than her. I think that he would still want to be the best god of all of them, of the two of them. I think he wants also to have someone around who's like him Mm -hmm. and also someone that he can always rule over because he doesn't think that she's ever going to surpass his powers. And so having someone around who's like a henchman will work really well for him. Yeah, exactly. I think you're so right. Henchwoman. I'm sorry to be (laughs) gender specific (laughs) to the the henches. henches. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I should really say hench person. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Something that the doctor pointed out, she said a mutated, smarter human being could make a new race. And I was like, um, that's how the eugenics war started? Please don't say that. Because when he was first showing these signs, like read the entire ship's library very quickly, or do these small telekinetic powers, she was intrigued, understandably. It is very fascinating to see someone with these powers and see them growing so quickly but I was like that's your first thought is that this could be a new race and how would it like would it really be better doesn't seem like it well and also isn't she a psychiatrist like isn't she on the ship specifically to monitor people under a stressful situation she's just been transferred to the ship and she asked if she could watch people be stressed out literally (laughs) It is kind of disturbing that she is going to his side so easily instead of picking him apart like we are with Kirk. But I think that she does feel a kinship to him because they both have powers. Yeah, Kirk has to make the decision of marooning his friend on Delta Vega, but Spock is worried that this won't be enough. He knows that they have to kill Mitchell in order for this to actually be okay and in order for him to not become so powerful that then soon he won't even be able to be killed because he's too powerful. And that's a terrifying thought. No one should have that much power on one person. He's down on Delta Vega with Kirk and Kirk is having this fight slash verbal sparring session with Gary Mitchell. (laughs) And Gary Mitchell says, command and compassion is a fool's mixture. Kirk says, a god needs compassion. I really liked this sort of back and forth because it's really showing their differences and it's showing that Kirk still wants to appeal to that side of Mitchell and say, remember, like, gods should be compassionate. It's not a bad thing to feel compassion and to show it to others, but I think that Mitchell's too far gone to even accept that. I mean, he calls it a fool's mixture, which is just really showcases how hungry for power he is and how he really just is looking down on everyone. Yeah, he thinks of himself as a full-time god, and has forgotten, I was gonna say he's forgotten his humanity, but unfortunately I feel like he's actually just embraced his savagery. Yes, absolutely, (laughs) Of the human race. It's a very interesting conversation that Kirk and Spock have about deciding to kill him or not, because obviously this is very drastic, and Spock suggests this about halfway through the episode. It does take you aback, because Spock is a vegetarian, and he doesn't kill anyone, Yeah, but he understands the danger of Gary, and he can do the math that his power is growing at an exponential rate so then when kirk realizes that maybe 10 minutes later that spock is absolutely right kirk blames himself and that is why he alone goes down to the planet and this is the start of a pattern that we are going to see time and time again with kirk is that if a situation is out of control he thinks that he can be the one to fix it And so he faces Gary head on, (laughs) (laughs) mano a mano. And I think he even says that this is my fault for not doing the right thing in the moment. And so I have to go pay the consequences. This is just quintessential Kirk. And this is something that really makes him stand out as a captain. Any captain would do this type of thing, like sacrifice himself for the crew. But Kirk voluntarily does time and time again because he cares so much about his crew and about his ship he's literally a ride or die so to see him burdened with the knowledge that he made the wrong choice and know that he's willing to die for it is really admirable here and just a reminder this is the pilot of star trek the official pilot What a powerful decision this brings out in Kirk. And like we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast, it really shows Kirk's true colors, that when he's made a mistake, he's going to own up to it, and he will literally die for it if necessary. Yeah, and that's something that we only really see more profoundly with villains who bring that out in him. So someone like Mitchell that... Is growing so powerful so quickly and really becoming out of hand. He's a very big adversary for Kirk, especially because he's his friend. That adds a whole nother layer of complication. And so I think it is interesting to see how different villains will bring out the strong guilt in Kirk to fix it, because the more scary the villain is, the harder they are to defeat, you know, and the more powerful they are. So it does force Kirk into these situations of drastic measures. I mean, he wouldn't have survived this if it hadn't been for the doctor. She really came in clutch at the end here and sacrificed her own life because she knew it was right and because Kirk had this amazing speech, but also that he does fling into things headfirst on his own, but it's also through the help of other people that he's able to do this i think he inspires people through his actions because you're right he's so brave and so willing to throw himself into fire that people are also willing to throw themselves into fire just seeing kirk do it and so he brings that nature out in other people which the villains bring out in him so it's a very interesting chain here he's so starfleet i love kirk so much this villain series has really ignited my kirk love again what a guy i'm wondering rihanna do you think that if gary had been allowed to complete his transformation do you think even a q could have stopped him do you think he would have been on their level i think he definitely would have been on their level and i'm not sure he could have been stopped i mean probably by a couple q like maybe he (laughs) was like the equivalent of like three q's you know but if he's still growing like does he ever stop would he at some point just become one with the universe and then become the universe kind of like bad wolf situation where you look into the heart of the tardis and you just sort of like (laughs) (laughs) become everything and all powerful you know i don't know Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. I think it's just rare and bold of an episode like this to possibly have such galaxy universe altering consequences because if Dr. Daner had not sacrificed herself and if Kirk hadn't been down on that planet, literally everyone might've died. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're pointing in the right direction of saying too that these best villains or worst depending on how we think of it are those who will take in galaxies galaxy-ending stakes, you know? They're more willing to take these massive... Risks for power, or for whatever reason, and that's what makes them so terrifying and intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on, I just want to say I really love the quote that Gary had. At some point, he's down on the planet. He's leaning against a rock. Doctor Daner says, "What are you thinking about?" And he says, "I've been contemplating the death of an old friend." And that's just (laughs) such. I feel like that line just really encapsulates how much of a one eighty he's done. Because at the beginning of this episode, he was like drinking buddies with Jim, and now he. He's gonna kill him in a mere 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, like premeditated, he's thinking about killing him. Do you mm-hmm. also think that he's talking about the death of his older self? Like his ooh, past self? Ooh, spicy. <laughs> ooh, yeah. I think it could yeah. definitely be interpreted that way. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's immediately what I thought. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I guess Kirk too. <laughs> I thought it was kind of a mercy that Kirk gave him at the end of this episode because after Gary's dead and they leave the planet, Kirk does mention and he does give commendations to Dr. Danner and to Gary Mitchell. And he doesn't mention anything that happened. He doesn't say, oh, he was an evil dude in the end. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just like gives him a commendation, which is really interesting. Yeah, he like preserved his stature and his position in starfleet and he preserved the way that people will think of him i guess it's probably better for his family to not know that he tried to kill kirk <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> Well okay so I want to talk now just to have a a little bit of different shades of villains now let's talk about a villain that does not have universe altering consequences and if this villain succeeded there would just be no salt. (laughs) I mean a lot of people would be dead too but you know Ashlyn the salt is really important. (laughs) I mean I really like salt so I really identify with this villain a lot honestly. (laughs) Yeah Ashlyn's obsessed with salt I think she's got a deficiency or something <laughs> <laughs> i have been told that i have a little deficiency <laughs> Any- anyway <laughs> So, of course, of course, we are talking about Nancy Crater in The Man Trap. And, okay, at first blush, this may not seem like a villain like Gary Mitchell or Khan, but Nancy is more villainous than you think. Rihanna, will you talk a little bit about Nancy in this episode? Yeah, so first thing to be noted, similar with Gary Mitchell, is the fact that this character is someone that one of our characters already knows going into it. And this character is Dr. McCoy now. He is seeing an old flame of his Nancy who who's living on this planet with just her husband they're just chilling <laughs> they're just chillin'. it sounds like a nightmare like I, I also need more people than just one just real quick i feel like there are a lot of planets that just have couples living on them like in tng <laughs> yeah there's that couple who's just chilling it's always like a mad scientist husband and then the supportive <laughs> wife You're so right. What in the world? What a weird trope. (laughs) Can all those couples go in one and then just be on like different hemispheres? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's very lonely. (laughs) Completely. Yeah. So we see that the crew is coming down to check on them to see how their reserves are, to see if they need more salt, you know, the usual. (laughs) (laughs) McCoy's also having to do physical exams on them. And I'm pretty sure that this is a part of the Enterprise's duty as the flagship. It's in the deepest parts of space, and so it sounds like it's transporting a lot of cargo, Mm -hmm. it's doing physicals on all the colonists that are under Federation protection. So this is an interesting stop. We don't see the Enterprise do these tiny little stops that often. (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah, and it's significant for McCoy, especially because he knew Nancy, and it's wild because the first time he sees her, she looks the same exact age that she did when they met 10 years ago. Nancy, turns out, is seen as a different woman to each of these men. So to Kirk, she's seen as a little bit older, to the sweet poor blue-shirted ensign we don't even get a name for. (laughs) He should be a red-shirted ensign. (laughs) Yeah he really should be. (laughs) He sees a woman he met on Rigel 6 or something that they had a good time. So right away we know something's up with her obviously shapeshifting into these different women and I also gotta say that she is a very good actor. Like Nancy Crater acting when she pretends that this poor blue shirt had just eaten a poisonous food or whatever she is like full on crying and in despair how you would normally react if you saw a dead body But, of course, she is the one who got all his salt from his body. So (laughs) she wasn't that remorseful. But she has really adapted to her environment. She knows all these different languages. Like, at one point when she shapeshifts and talks to Uhura, she's speaking in Swahili, which is really cool. But it also makes me wonder about how powerful this creature is. Because we find out, of course, this is not Nancy Crater. Nancy Crater has been dead for quite a while because she got the salt sucked out of her from this (laughs) very creature. And left the husband alive. Yeah, I actually just looked up the name of this actress, and right under the name, this is Gian Ball. So, like, huge props to Gian Ball for her portrayal of nancy crater but right underneath it says that the species she plays is a salt vampire <laughs> so wow. there's not even like an official like cool star trek alien name she's just yeah. a straight salt vampire well probably because it's the last of its kind this vampire and it's the buffalo it's yeah. the <laughs> buffalo exactly and so this is really crazy because this salt vampire killed the professor's wife and then they've been living alone together for years this vampire just like one year oh okay yeah so this has only been happening for about a year yeah so you know just 12 months of this living with a salt (laughs) vampire sounds like a a weird comedy my life with a salt vampire or something yeah seriously (laughs) still a better love story than twilight though (laughs) yeah it's still saltier than twilight for sure (laughs) (laughs) and it turns out she also has access to memory, so that's why she can transform into anyone. If she has access to their memories, she can become the people that they hold most dear, and she can take on a bit of their traits, and so she was sort of able to be the wife that Nancy's husband wanted her to be, and so they coexisted for a while because he understood that, oh, you're the last of your kind. Like, you really do need salt to survive. You're not trying to kill people. You're just hungry, you know? You're just trying to live. So I'm wondering about Dr. Crater a lot. At some point in the episode, Nancy makes her way up onto the ship where she's transforming and everything. Mm-hmm. And then Crater has this whole scene where he's confessing everything and talking about what's going on. And he says that at first he was angry with the salt creature for killing Nancy. But then he started to feel really sympathetic for it because exactly what you just said, Rian, as the last of his kind, blah, blah, blah. But do you think it's also a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome? Because if there's no salt, she's definitely going to kill him. You know what I mean? Like, she eats salt. That's what she does. And we know when the Enterprise comes that they're running out. And that's why she's killing these crewmen immediately. Yes. And this is where the levels of villainy start to become apparent because they're not out of salt yet i think she's just killing for the fun of it and because she knows that she's going to get a lot of salt from these bodies more than she would like with the salt tablets that she's going to get from the enterprise i just want to clarify like they're not out at all she sees a farm coming towards her on the enterprise and she says great look at all this salt i can have and i think the thing that really seals the deal for me about Nancy's betrayal is that we see Dr. Crater fighting for her and talking about how he loves her, even if she is a creature. And then she kills him anyway. She murders him in cold blood. And there's a crew full of people. When she's running around the Enterprise, she could have killed literally anyone else. And she ends up killing Dr. Crater. Like, that is cold. That is cold. She heard all of this. She heard how sweet he was being and defending her. And boom, murder. (laughs) Yeah, this is what I found so disturbing. And it's a great point you bring up, Ashlyn, because Kirk is also really mad at Dr. Crater. And he says that he is acting like an idle slave. And I completely agree. At first, I understood where he was coming from more because he says that it isn't just a beast, it's intelligent and the last of its kind. So I think that it also manipulated him in this way of being like, well, I'm the last of my kind. You don't want to be the person who made my species go extinct. That's a huge burden to carry, and so I completely understand why he feels sort of trapped or like an idle slave, as Kirk says, and one other thing I was going to say is that also he said that it needs love as much as any other creature. It needs salt and love. I'm like, you know, (laughs) I guess that's just what some people need, but not to the extent where you're killing others, and we can see her manipulate very well. She uses McCoy a lot in this episode to try and get him to protect her but she really just wants to eat him the whole time or you know suck out his salt so it's just very manipulative yeah I kind of feel like Dr. Crater is similar to the people on Tiger King I know Rihanna hasn't seen that but a lot of these people who run the at-home zoos buy these tigers when they're young and cute and then makes a lot of money bringing people into the park so then they can like oh pet a tiger and hang out with a baby tiger but then once the tiger gets to be a teenager or an adult it starts attacking the workers because Mm -hmm. a tiger is a tiger and so I feel like that's how Dr. Crater might feel about Nancy too that no matter how cute she is. In the end, she's still a salt vampire, but she's not only an animal. And this is why we're talking about her. And this is why Dr. Crater is mistaken. She has this intellect and this manipulation that she uses to great reward in mm-hmm. this episode. Until not, until she is yeah. shot and killed. Good thing Spock's blood is not full of <laughs> <Yeah>. salt. <laughs> this is my favorite thing. If you need Spock to escape a situation, make it because he's half Vulcan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my ancestry saves me from this. Like, how many times has he said that? <laughs> Literally every episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited. I think let's move on to the Squire of Gothos and talk a little bit about Trelane. Yes. Okay, so I looked up some theories and just some questions because everyone asked this question, is Trelane a Q? Is he some form of a Q? Is that what Star Trek The Next Generation writers were going for when they created John Delancey's character, the Q? I had sort of a feeling, especially by the end of this episode, where we learn that he is pretty much just the petulant child (laughs) as far as he's going. I feel like he is younger than Q Jr. in Voyager. Like He is like a baby Q who was just starting out on his own. Just starting to world build <laughs> all of that. He's like the first time ever being a dungeon master in DD. So, you know, oh, he has uh, to learn a lot. <laughs> I was just gonna say he just downloaded Minecraft. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but turns out Minecraft, the people and pigs are real. And so yeah, that's yeah. bigger consequences. <laughs> but that was sort of my inclination, but it's never been canonically proven that trelane is a part of the Q species and i just want mike mcmahon or someone to bring this back around and give us a final answer on this yeah man i would love a recasting of Trelaine and see him maybe in strange new worlds Ooh, yeah. spicy or, or even Decks because they could just animate yeah. him yeah yes oh yes sorry i'm, I'm very <laughs> jazzed <laughs> i think my third cup of coffee is kicking in i'm like janeway i'm about to go to warp <laughs> um. <laughs> anyway <laughs> Yeah, so I was looking this whole episode for signs of him being a Q. I know this isn't quite villain related, but it's still just really interesting to talk about him being a possible Q. So the Enterprise is chilling. It sees this planet that is not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And Spock is like, What? WTF? (laughs) This is like a really known part of space. Why is this planet here? Yeah, exactly. And then they go down, and it turns out it's this elaborate 17th, 18th century castle that Trelaine has recreated because he's looking 900 years into Earth's past, which is actually what happens if you look through a telescope you see the past. So that's what Trelane is seeing, is hunting weapons up on the wall and people dancing with Louis XIV and not all this. The gun that shot Alexander Hamilton, or not the real one, a replica. Like he's got everything. <laughs> Eliza. and Peggy. yeah um, yeah yeah um also really quick my name is alexander hamilton <laughs> sorry actually i made a really great tiktok about that you guys should go check it out on our tiktok page oh i need to check it out too <laughs> anyway yeah But there's also real quick in this castle there's also a museum edition of the salt vampire did you see that i did yeah Yeah. and dang it you know i should have led that as our transition oh i didn't even think of it till now yeah i missed i missed that opportunity that's okay (laughs) yeah yeah he fires a phaser at it to test and see how it works and that vampire is gone just like nancy yeah What's interesting is that Trelane can't quite recreate all of these things exactly how they were because he eventually invites down the crew of the Enterprise to have a ball with him. Yeah. And the food tastes like nothing. And McCoy says the brandy tastes like nothing, but he's still carrying around the brandy and drinking it. This is so McCoy. <laughs> like, literally, we'll have, he put any refreshment in front of him, even if they're bona fide prisoners, and he's like, you know what, sure, I'm, <laughs> if I could be drinking it any time, I will be. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like even in this episode earlier, he was drinking in the sick bay, and he says to Spock, "Don't judge me," <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's like it's one of those days, which he means yeah. one of those years. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Also, trelaid has worked so hard to put every single detail into this, and of course, it's completely off because this is the thing: is like he thought he was in the right time, and so that's what started to clue me in. Oh. This guy is not the brightest. He has a lot of power, but not a lot of brains to go along with it. And so it definitely made him an interesting adversary, but one who was also easily manipulated because he had a lot of ego and a lot of power and not a lot of brains to back it up. (laughs) Yeah, so now back to this mirror because he's looking into it the whole time and everything he's doing, he's kind of glancing back. And at first I thought maybe he was just really egotistical, kind of like Lockhart vibes. You know, he just wants to check out how beautiful he is and like, (laughs) look, I look great while I'm bossing these people around, don't I? Yeah. I think it's a little bit of that, but mostly it's because there's a machine behind the mirror and it seems like, the machine is powering this castle and powering the illusion that's going on, but I don't know if that's actually the case because Trelane actually can do all of these amazing things. Like He can just make the castle appear and move the whole planet. This is not something he's doing because of technology. It's because of a power that he has innately inside him. And so... When Kirk phasered that mirror, do you think that was actually a way that his parents or that the other cues or his species or whatever can see into his life and kind of keep an eye on him? That's kind of what I was thinking is that he was sort of like, look, mom, look, you're not watching. You're not watching. Look, look what I'm doing. I'm doing so great. That kind of thing, because they might have explained it and i missed it but i'm pretty sure because once he, kirk shot the mirror and everything wasn't that when the parents showed up and were like oh yeah. son," <laughs> <laughs> they showed it it was like a 10 minute delay probably yeah so yeah. maybe they had to travel to get there or maybe they were like whatever i'm busy and well, then let me project my head and after i'm done with this paperwork or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was my guess, because you're right. I think his powers are separate from whatever's going on in that mirror. I thought maybe at first was an amplifier, but I think you're right. It's just some sort of watchful eye or something. Yeah, because I wasn't sure this episode was kind of throwing me, because I was like, oh, is this a Landrew situation? Right. <laughs> Where it's really a computer running this the whole time, or is Trelane actually not powerful and it's all trickery? Is, he, is this really the man behind the curtain, like Wizard of Oz style? Right. Right, but know and this is the most convincing evidence that I think he is a Q, is because his ghostly parents his like green cloud parents show up <laughs> at the end of the episode to exactly you're right Rihanna you had a great impression of them oh son <laughs> what are you doing yeah well yeah. actually I mean it's really funny the way that they do this because the more that the episode's going on the more he is starting to throw these tantrums I remember right before I saw the parents I literally said out loud to myself i'm like wow he's acting like a five-year-old and then Mm -hmm. they're like son we gave you this power but now you're not using it right you're tormenting these humans these humans have a right to their own freedom and their own lives you need to release them and they're kind of like shame on you trelane you need to be doing better we expected more from you do we have to take away your privileges so very much like the parent lecture he got from that Yes. Oh absolutely. I also just wanna bring up once again that at one point everyone is able to escape safely back to the Enterprise and then they're going like warp nine trying to escape and the planet keeps moving with them wherever they go to block their path. And so eventually Kirk realizes, you know what, I'm just gonna have to go down there and deal with him. Yeah. Just like he always does. He says, I'm the one, I gotta go down. If I sacrifice myself, then my ship can escape and it'll all be worth it. Yeah. And that's exactly what he does he goes down there so trelane is a god tier enough villain Mm -hmm. that kirk is willing to sacrifice himself to save the crew i had kind of a realization while watching this because we see this pattern so much with kirk that this is why he says to spock and mccoy in the final frontier i know i'll die alone Mm. i've always known i'll die alone Because this is his pattern, and so how can you not expect to eventually actually die doing this at some Mm. point? So that just, it really got to me. I was like, oh man, Kirk. (laughs) That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Oh my God. Wow, that hits hard. Anyway, yeah, it kind of hit different. Yeah. Another thing I found interesting with Trelane and a lot of these other villains is that they are constantly talking about Napoleon. Man, these characters could not get Napoleon off their mind. Everyone is talking about them and it's everyone's automatic go-to when someone has too much power and is becoming too strong and too militant or too tyrannical. They're like, ah, yes, I admire your Napoleon. Or like, oh, you're a modern Napoleon. (laughs) Like, they're always talking about Napoleon. They talk about him in this episode. And I just think that he's a very interesting example that everyone adheres to and a lot of people admire. And I wonder if that is the most colloquial reference they could have made that everyone would understand or if you think there's significance to that. Well, yeah, I mean, Caesar and Napoleon, I feel like, are the two that come up so often. And I feel like it would be really off color for Trelane to say, I admire someone like Hitler, you know, yes. or Mussolini or oh or Stalin. And because right. those are all dictators that murdered thousands of millions of people Mm -hmm. and someone like Caesar or Napoleon just had a vision about how to reshape their country and seized power in a very, I guess, attractive way, you know? I think that that's what a lot of these villains see and are really inspired by. Ashlyn, I think that's a really good distinction. Even though most of these villains are definitely on par with some of the worst humans that we know about that are famous for being horrible in history. Oh, absolutely. I also really liked the quote that Trelane says to them when he says he's been studying humans, learning about them, and he says, "Did you know that you're the few predator species that preys even on itself?" I was like, mm. "Damn, he said it." <laughs> like, yeah, he sure did. And also, one more thing I want to talk about the sick burn that Spock had to Trelane. Yes. He said, "I object" to intellect without discipline i object to power without constructive purpose and i think that this is exactly what trelane is when it comes down to it is he is absolutely intellect without discipline i mean not that smart but he uses his whims in order to guide his next moves and i think honestly it comes from a place of wanting to connect to people but not knowing how like he's socially inept a little bit like i feel like he's just been alone for a long time and so he's not very good at interacting with people yeah and we assume that he's still fairly young within his race so that's probably the other reason is why he's so childlike and everything but yeah he's a very interesting character I also thought another clue to him being a Q, <laughs> clue to the Q, mm-hmm. is that he does have, they he does create a court and says that he's going to execute Kirk. And he's yeah. like wearing the wig and everything. And yes. so how could the next generation not have taken this directly from itself? I mean, Gene Roddenberry worked on all of this. You know, he created the character of Q. So yeah. I feel like, it's just got to be connected in some way. Oh, absolutely. The parents at the end, the daddy Q or whatever I call them calls Kirk and company your pets. So even it shows mm. that their whole species, very much like the Q species, do see themselves as superior and others as inferior. But at least they're guiding him to say, you have to be more careful with your pets. You can't just mess with them to your whim. We made you a whole planet. We expected you to be better than this. Be responsible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we've talked a lot so far about how these villains have brought out different sides of our protagonists like Kirk and Spock. So let's talk about how these traits are brought out when it's evil Kirk that the crew is facing in the Enemy Within. I'm Captain Kirk. I'm I'm Captain Kirk. (laughs) okay first of all shatner's acting in this oh Oh. it's uh it's it's a lot it's it's (laughs) insurmountable truly next level give us a little synopsis here yes i would love to this is such a funny and great episode so there's a classic transporter accident and now there's two kirks and that's all you need to know <laughs> <laughs> on the morning show. um yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> and so poor sulu and a couple of red shirts are hanging out on this planet they're doing some research and because of the transporter being broken it accidentally created two kirks and it also created two dogs that are dressed up as aliens i don't even <laughs> (laughs) You can't even pretend that you think that they're aliens because it's literally a dog in a costume. (laughs) Yeah, that that dog should really get paid over time yeah <laughs> yes, for, yeah <laughs> yeah you think shatner got paid overtime for this too for playing two kirks Probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh anyway so poor sulu and friends are freezing down on this planet because the transporter's not working and don't ask me where the shuttlecraft is because it's nowhere in sight they can't just send down a shuttle maybe they don't have it because this is a pretty early episode of season one maybe they haven't gotten the galileo yet or something yeah my guess is there's an ion storm that's usually why they can't bring the shuttle down (laughs) yeah or transport you're right that's exactly why the transporter is broken because one of the researchers they beamed up right before they beamed up kirk was covered in this like Pollen or some kind of weird substance from the planet that interfered with the transporter and Somehow it interfered so much that it was able to find Kirk's positive and negative traits and (laughs) Split them in half into two humans (laughs) It's amazing technology (laughs) Yeah, Just incredible At first, the crew does not believe it, and no one knows that this Evil Kirk is running around, and it's actually pretty disturbing, everything that Evil Kirk does, but he's described as Spock later as the savage opposite, and, he is terrible. (laughs) Yeah I've found Evil Kirk to be terrifying like way more than I remember I think because I only remember watching Enemy Within as a kid and all of that going over my head and just laughing at Shatner's funny acting. You know I think I took a very surface level but to see this episode again now and to see just how dark Kirk's dark sides are it kind of reminded me vaguely of The Cage where They're showing Pike's deepest desires, and it's that he wants to be with a slave girl. (laughs) Deep, dark sexual fantasy kind of thing, but this is like pulling that out and embodying a person with their darkest wants and everything, and it's awful because he tries to assault Yeoman Rand, and it's horrible because she doesn't know. Like you said, Ashlyn, she doesn't know that he is a double of Kirk, and so this is horribly traumatic for her, understandably, and for anyone that this evil Kirk interacts with, they're just floored by him because he is just so unlike the sweet, confident, amazing captain that we know. Yeah, it's just awful because then Kirk is having to explain himself and say, oh, it wasn't me. But I honestly, like Ashlyn and I watched this episode together over Zoom and I kept saying Kirk is focusing way too much on the fact that he wants to alleviate guilt from himself than the fact that Yeoman Rand is really traumatized and really going through it. Like he should, first of all, have not been in the room. That's what Ashlyn said. She was like, why is Kirk in here? Like get him out of there. You do not want to see his face. When Rand is trying to explain what happened, it should just have been to Spock and McCoy, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, get Kirk out of there. We also discover that not only has Kirk been split, but his side that is not evil is a lot more docile and incapable of making big decisions and not very action-oriented. This does not make for a good captain, obviously. This is not the balance that we need, and this is the thing that we learn about in The Enemy Within, of course. is like, oh, you need your light and dark to balance each other out. I don't know. How would you feel about this, Ashlyn, if you had been split into two? I definitely would not want to incorporate my evil self back into me well this is why it's such an intriguing episode because docile kirk on his own is a great person he's very empathetic and he's very outward with his emotions and he's transparent and vulnerable with everyone around him he wants to tell the crew and be honest with them about what's happening but spock says you can't show any kind of weakness to them and kirk doesn't really understand that in his state So I think if he was not a captain, and if he was not in Starfleet, he could easily have a great life without this evil side of him. yeah, Would he accomplish a lot? Probably not. I think he would open his own winery in France (laughs) and hang out and just chill there for 20 years until his sequel came around. (laughs) But no, this is not who Captain Kirk is. And as a captain, you have to be able to make decisions and you have to have your wits about you. And it's unfortunate that the evil Kirk got all the wits. Yeah. (laughs) And that evil Kirk is the one who makes impulsive decisions decisions, but he's got the smart, nice part of himself that knows that those decisions are correct or feels that they are. And of course, Evil Kirk is making terrible, impulsive decisions that are detrimental to people around him. Yes, I actually thought Spock said it the best, because Spock says everything the best at all times. Yes. (laughs) But he says, when you are a whole person, your spontaneous, impulsive side is tamed by the logic that you possess. And so I really liked the way that he worded that because in life, isn't that what we're all trying to do is just tame the side of us that is reckless and wants to run around the street naked, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Aren't we all just trying to tamper that down and be productive members of society? It's really hard. I feel for Kirk and it's very sad to see what happens to his docile side. And also I was wondering if this is really realistic I don't know, psychologically, I was having trouble making sense of how he was losing his ability to command yeah, through all of this. I had wonder about that too, because all of the symptoms he was exhibiting as docile Kirk reminded me a lot of my own anxiety. How a lot of times it makes mm. it difficult to make decisions, or all the stuff I explained about docile Kirk, I'm like, I feel that. Definitely more open and kind, but also more vulnerable to things. Less capable of making decisions, less impulsive. But I often consider my anxiety the dark part of me. So I would assume that my anxiety would go into the evil side. But I don't think it's necessarily true for everyone. I think that that could have been the impulsiveness that isn't a part of Kirk's anxieties. But also his anxieties help him to tamper that impulsiveness. So I think it could be that's why they're split in that way is that i mean it's it's hard to know because everyone's psychology is different but it did remind me a bit of the rick and morty episode where they're also split into i'm sure they got it from star trek because Mm -hmm. they're also split into good and evil and morty is just scared of everything and can barely function and that's sort of how i would imagine myself to be split is like one half would be uber confident and the other half would just be like crying all the time (laughs) but i think for kirk it manifests differently like spock said with the impulsivities and the dark thoughts and the reckless actions are paired with careful thought contemplation and kindness and so that's sort of how he's split spock even calls him tender yeah he he calls good kirk tender and loving yeah he was like (laughs) kirk you're so soft right now yeah like oh baby and i also just got a poor went out for spock in this episode because he sees kirk's deterioration throughout this episode similar to a patient who's sick it was reminding me like mm-hmm. kirk is not at a hundred percent and so spock is going to help him and whenever he sees him slipping Spock comes in to save the day and to make a decision for him and to be that backbone for Kirk so it was really sweet to see their relationship in this episode yeah and Kirk knows himself well enough to ask Spock to do that for him I mean of course I think Spock would do it anyway and he did but the first time Spock did it on his own sort of being like captain do you think that's the best idea And then he says, if you see me slipping like that again, you have to let me know. And I just love that they have that trust with each other. And yeah, I think that I do recognize a lot of dark Kirk's actions in some of these other villain episodes, like the choice to have to kill, or the choice to maroon somebody, you know, or all of these tough choices that I don't think could be made with only docile Kirk. He has to have a bit of a ruthless side of him in order to make horrible, difficult decisions that Starfleet sometimes demands of you, and oof that's got to be hard but it is something that makes a starfleet captain and i think that we could split any of our starfleet captains that we know in any of these series and see similar types of impulsiveness and reaction and all of that out of their dark sides absolutely well and i think what we see in kirk's dark side we've been talking a lot about what the good side has the most important thing that good kirk has is his intelligence and his Mm -hmm. logic and he's able to think rationally and so on the flip side evil kirk is kind of stupid (laughs) but he's so confident that he just makes decisions and he stands by them a hundred percent and is completely unwavering in his decision and Mm -hmm. so that type of power without any kind of regulation of it is really dangerous and that's what makes him such a good and terrifying villain and this is what a lot of villains have you know we've been talking about a lot of intelligent villains but some of the most dangerous ones are the ones that are kind of stupid but they're very driven to do something no matter what it is they will burn down the house if that's what they want to do you know evil kirk will kill everyone if he can yeah To gain power of this ship, yeah. And I think it's really interesting at the end of this episode when he tries to scratch the good Kirk and he's trying to act like good old Captain Kirk on the bridge and just trying to be normal Kirk, but it's obvious that he is not (laughs) the right Kirk and everyone on the crew can see it immediately that this is the wrong Kirk, this is the imposter yeah, also, I was really impressed that Docile Kirk or Goodkirk or <laughs> whoever you want to call him. I was really impressed that he, was so tender with his evil side, you know, that he was able to try and rationalize and be like, I need you. And of course, evil Kirk's like, I don't need you and he runs away. (laughs) But he was still attempting to show that side of him compassion. And of course, it doesn't change much because it's so split and there's no compassion within this side of Kirk. But it was really cool to see him Especially at the end when the evil Kirk is just tired of fighting and running and knowing that they have to be together, even though he doesn't want to mold back with himself, that Kirk's just holding himself, you know, and it's just, it's a really interesting scene and a tenderness that, like Spock said, I think really came out in that side of Kirk. Yeah, that was a really interesting way to end this episode, especially you just see him grasping himself. And really, like, that's the kind of self-love we all need. (laughs) Literally. If you can dig deep enough to hug your evil side, okay. Maybe there's hope for you yet. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Okay, so villains are not always the same. And so this next one that we are talking about is not inherently that evil but someone who is definitely a great adversary for kirk and the enterprise and that is the romulan commander i wish i knew her name but she only whispers it to spock i know only (laughs) spock's given that crucial information (laughs) yeah he didn't tell memory alpha no come on we don't know what her name is yeah i think this is a good point ashlyn is that of course to the romulans she is not known as a villain and she's not a wild card villain who is just trying to wreak havoc on everything No, she's a commander of a Romulan ship. She is doing what she thinks is best for her people, but we had to talk about the Romulans because they're such big adversaries to all of Starfleet for so long, even deep into Picard. We are still talking about the Romulans and how we don't like them or how people are split on them. And so I'm really glad that we got to see A Romulan in this light of not just sneering and saying fire and telling secrets and spreading lies and stuff. And yes she was doing all those things, but she has this poise and collection to her, which is the reason I would run away with her. You know, I think that she (laughs) is a very talented commander who was just thwarted by some pretty smart people. You know, I think that obviously she has her own branch of intelligence. She's very smart, but it's hard to outwit Spock and Kirk when they're at their best. Yeah, and when they're united in their goal. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. The Enterprise incident is definitely up there as one of my favorite episodes because you get to see so many shades of all of these characters. And something that I thought was interesting is immediately when Spock beams over, she is taken with him and flirting right away. She's ready to go. And Spock plays his part masterfully. He has clearly been watching Kirk over the past three seasons win his way into the hearts of ladies because Spock is playing her like a fiddle. I think that one of the reasons it's so easy for Spock to manipulate her is because they're both on a similar intellect level and that's how they are flirting is through their wit and their intellect and it's something that I think comes at an ease for Spock. We see him have this dynamic with McCoy. They're having these philosophical discussions or with Kirk. So it's easy for him to put himself in that role with her. And it's very clever the way they're they're speaking to each other and it's so fun to watch their banter because I wouldn't expect that of Spock and it feels so effortless to him. It oh, looks it's- effortless. It is. It's absolutely effortless. Leonard Nimoy and Spock. What a legend. Amazing (laughs) legends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What I thought was so interesting, too, is I think it really showed the commander that she does not have anyone around her who's at her same intellect and so in this way Spock is isolating her Mm. because he's so much above all of the lackeys that she has around him and there's probably no one that she can have interesting conversations with when she's just running around Romulan space and defending the neutral zone and everything and so to meet this rare specimen especially a secret Vulcan in Starfleet is very intriguing. Ashlyn, that's a great point because in the initial part of this episode when we meet the sub commander, he is just your run-of-the-mill villain. He gives them an hour to decide if they want to die or get captured, (laughs) you know? It's all of the cliches from the book. He is your stereotypical Romulan. So to see her appear in this episode and have such grace and power was really fun to watch and, like I said earlier, such a great change because Kirk is like, oh where is he? where's your commander and everyone's assuming it's a man and i'm assuming it's a man and then it's not and it subverts expectations and i think that that is really fun to watch especially because she's able to straddle her effeminate side and her commander side very well in my opinion Yeah, well and I thought it was also masterfully done how Spock was able to kind of force her to transition into being even more flirty because after he learns her name, he says it's hard to hear such a beautiful name coming out of the mouth of a soldier and she's like oh okay well i'll go change so i'm not the soldier right now yeah and his use of flattery is amazing and it would definitely work on me oh 100 <laughs> percent. i'd be like all right spock let's do it <laughs> i'm as gay as the day is long but i would be so down <laughs> They're both very carefully tactful too, which is what I realized. They both tiptoe around each other in certain ways. And then they're like snakes mirroring each other, one waiting to strike the final blow. And they play her well because Kirk is the opposite of this. He's the opposite of cool and careful and tactful. He is really playing it hard he is laying it on thick he's calling this pocket traitor he's like spitting like pissing essentially like he's, he's definitely a feral cat he's, in this. he's like catatonic this is such a funny plan because there's a lot of times where captains have to enter the neutral zone without telling their crew why mm-hmm. and kirk's approach is to start acting crazy yeah, to over, insult like, everyone yeah like the week before he goes to the neutral zone he just starts acting wild and mccoy's like i'm gonna write him up Literally, I mean, we start out with McCoy's log where he's like, What's going on with Jim? (laughs) Yeah. So I love his weird ingenuity. (laughs) Yeah. Just to get everyone to turn against him. And then when he attacks Spock on the Romulan ship, Spock uses that classic Vulcan death grip to kill Kirk. And then, of course, he's not dead but he's able to be transformed into a Romulan and steal the cloaking device. Yeah. So this whole plot is just genius I <laughs> on mean, Kirk's part. <laughs> right? Well and of course they had to do a very elaborate plan because this cloaking device in the hands of the Romulans could be very dangerous and very detrimental to the piece that they're trying to maintain, or pseudo-piece, I should say. We've got high stakes with the cloaking device, and the way this is executed is practically flawless. But first of all, I think it's hilarious that the Romulan commander gives Spock 20 minutes to say his statement before he is supposed to be executed. She's like, well, you know our rights well. Yeah, you're allowed that of time. But she's making addendums to his statement. She's <laughs> like, well, do you really want to say that? He's like, excuse me, this is my statement. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was definitely... definitely... Definitely just trying to filibuster until they could beam him up. (laughs) Literally, you're so right. But she knows the transporter's coming, so she goes along with him. And she is prepared to die so that the Romulans can blow up Enterprise. She is completely willing. She says to the subcommander when they're trailing them, she says blow up the ship. I don't care if I'm on it. We are not letting them get the cloaking device. So that's very captain of her, very commander style. Sacrifice herself for the good of the mission or whatever. I also wanted to point out too that she is power hungry in the fact that she wants enterprise. She wants the biggest prize of all, which is to be lifted up in the ranks by the fact that she captured Enterprise. Like that's everyone's main goal whenever they see Enterprise. Most villains are like, ooh, I want that. (laughs) And so it is interesting to see her crave it and to see her think about how she could become even stronger and more powerful within the Romulan high command. She, I think, feels the same about Enterprise that she feels about Spock. She sees things and she wants them, and I think she normally gets them. Yeah. And this is the first time in a long time that she's been thwarted, because it comes out of left field. She does not see it coming. Her and Spock basically do it. They do the dirty Vulcan style and Romulan (laughs) style. (laughs) So, I mean, they have a very intimate moment together, and... She is very hurt by this, but I think actually Spock kind of had some feelings too. And he was stuck in a situation where obviously the Federation comes first and the Enterprise comes first. But I think in another life, they might've been able to be happy together. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Wild. Well... Okay, before we go to Khan, let's talk about Conscience of the King with another K-villain. This time it's Kudos or Kodos. (laughs) (laughs) Kodos. So, Kodos was, I should say, a very dangerous villain in Star Trek's past, as well as Kirk's past and Kevin Riley's past. Riley, we only know because he was crazy during the naked time and saying a lot. <laughs> like, that's the last time I think we've really seen Riley do anything cool or interesting. Mm-hmm. But he's back in this episode along with Kirk and some of his other friends because there are only nine witnesses to Kodos's mass. Execution on Tarsus Four. So this was a horrible event that Kodos essentially was like Thanos from Avengers, and was like, if I get rid of half of the population, then the other half won't starve and they can thrive and have a good world. But because there was a shortage of food, because of this famine plague thing, r- rushed through the crops, and so everyone was starving to death. And so Governor Kodos thought that was the best solution was to execute half of the population. I think he said it was like 4,000 people. Yeah, 4,000 people he executed. This is a colony. This isn't even a very large colony. If the colony is only 8,000 people and you're executing 4,000 of them, that's just horrible. And he was like, no, just half of you are gonna die and I don't care. Well, he chose. He made decisions based off of their ethnicity and things like that. So he purposefully killed the people that he viewed as worse than him, so probably people of different races and things like that. Yeah, and Um, genders and like ages, frailty, all that stuff. He really, really reminds me of Thanos. Like, this is Thanos' whole thing, Mm -hmm. where he is trying to end poverty and his solution is to wipe out half of the population, and that's not the answer. No. The difference is that Thanos is arbitrarily killing randomly half and this guy is choosing who he wants to exterminate. Yeah, it's horrible. But it's still half, yeah. So when we see him, he is playing Macbeth in a play that Kirk is watching along with a fellow survivor of Kodos's rule who actually saw Kodos in the flesh when he was the governor and we find out that originally there were nine people who saw his face, and they were the only survivors, but little by little, the survivors have been dying. And it happens to be wherever this troop has appeared, and Kodos, who we think is this different guy in the beginning, he's in a Shakespeare troupe where I think they just do a bunch of different Shakespeare plays together. His daughter is with them in the troupe, And wherever they happen to travel around, someone ends up dying. Someone from the Nine Witnesses. And so this is how Kirk's attention is drawn to it is from his friend Tom, who is later killed because of this, because he was a witness. The thing I find most plot inconsistent about this is just the fact that Kirk looks up a picture of Kodos, even though he said that only nine people saw his face. So how do they have a picture of him? yeah i was wondering i mean i guess there's pictures of him when he first became governor and was nice yeah like Uh, his governor's picture (laughs) official portrait i don't know that is a great question i didn't really think about that yeah Yeah, that's weird well and also when kirk looks at the side by side of the two people it's obvious that they're the same (laughs) literally (laughs) yeah it's pretty easy to figure out that this is kodos once you start putting together all the facts which is exactly what spock does and spock figures it out before even kirk is a hundred percent certain yes exactly this is one of the circumstances where we kind of have different villainous intent and levels because it's not kodos who is killing these witnesses it is kodos's daughter she is the one who has been killing people because she wants the past to be completely buried and she wants to move on but it's I mean, what has to go through your head to think, oh, I'm going to kill all of these witnesses so that this past is completely buried? Well, this is really the mark of someone who's extremely dangerous because she doesn't even think what she's doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. She thinks, oh, I'm just helping my dad. You know, I'm taking out the trash. I'm murdering his witnesses for him. It's all the same. It's all good. It's for the good of our future. Yeah, and she blames Kirk for bringing it back up, which, of course, is total victim blaming, totally re-traumatizing this group of people who went through this, and kodos acts as though he's very guilty and very remorseful about what happened but i'm like i'm sorry i don't care how remorseful you are you still killed half of a population it still doesn't excuse it yeah it does seem like he does have a lot of regret for what he did and i do think when someone gets older and has time to reflect on all the people they murdered you do change your mind and you do have some remorse but It was clear to me when I saw how ruthless his daughter was that that is exactly how he used to be, too. So this is really interesting because it's not learned behavior because it says that she's 19 years old and these atrocities happened 20 years ago. And so she was born after all of this. And so everything that she's learned about his rule as being a governor has been through him or by her looking it up or something and so she wasn't even alive watching him do these horrible acts but it's just innately in her to have the same tendencies and that is almost more terrifying. (laughs) Yes and this is sort of the category that I want to call the Shakespearean villain category (laughs) because of course this episode is very heavily Shakespeare oriented. They actually do end up playing Hamlet which is where Conscience of the King comes from. They're doing a whole play on play on play you know which is really fun to watch. Then Put on Hamlet which is a show about a guy putting on a play to catch the real murderer all this stuff and so she literally says at one point let bloody vengeance take its final course which is just the most shakespearean thing i've ever heard and something that we'll talk about with con here in a couple minutes but i do find it funny and amazing when these shakespearean villains come into play in star trek because i think the shakespearean archetype of villain is that exact thing that you said Ashlyn unhinged dangerous and power hungry and a lot of times not even realizing what they're doing is wrong or if they are they're too far gone to care and we see sort of her madness at the end of this episode when she accidentally shoots her father because Kodo saved Kirk he pushed him out of the way and got shot instead and you see her just completely lose it and it kind of reminded me of if Ophelia went on a rampage instead of killing herself she killed a bunch of people (laughs) like that's kind of the vibe I got you know was that same 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 sort of same flavor of madness that a lot of Shakespearean characters take on so I really like to see this archetype of the Shakespearean villain because they're fun to watch but they're scary and they're dangerous and they don't hold back. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought this was a really good twist because I did not see it coming the first time I watched this. That it was the daughter. I had no indication because no. everyone that Kirk hangs out with and ends up getting with is always like a nice lady for the most yeah. part. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, his nice lady meter was way off <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I can't hold it back anymore. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have to talk okay, about Khan, You know, we were talking about how Kodos is really just this, like, Shakespearean villain and how his daughter is also very Shakespearean. Well, you know who fits right into that bill is Khan Noonien Singh. Khan! (laughs) (laughs) The one we've all been waiting for. The arguably probably one of the greatest Star Trek villains of all time. We are talking about Khan, and we're going to start by talking about the episode Space Seed, where he first appeared. Yeah, um, I've been shaking this entire recording so far, waiting to talk about Khan. So I'm so excited right now. Yeah, same. (laughs) Okay, so for those of you who are new to Khan or don't quite remember his backstory, let me just fill you in a little bit here. Khan is probably the greatest leader <laughs> dictator question mark from the third world war which happened anywhere from between 1993 and 1996 both space seed and the wrath of khan give different years which is really funny but anyway so there were about 80 to 90 rulers over earth during world war three and they were all like terrible dictators but they were all products of eugenics which is where they were biologically altered to be stronger and smarter and every er um, (laughs) you can imagine (laughs) (laughs) and so what we don't know and what we discover throughout space seed actually spock specifically discovers is that anywhere from 70 to like a hundred of these dictators were never found and their bodies were not discovered. And so they're just missing. Then when Kirk and the Enterprise stumble upon a shuttle called the Botany Bay, they wake up the leader, Khan. They discover that he is indeed the greatest of all of these dictators and the and the worst. <laughs> yeah, this is wild. I really like to hear more about this history because we're only given snippets of World War III and of the eugenic wars and everything, so it's really nice to hear them talk about it. Also, I was wondering, who do you think made these vessels, the sleeper ship here, because um, they call it a DY-100 vessel made in the 1990s, and they said that suspended animation took years to travel, but until 2018, when they finally (laughs) discovered a faster way to travel, which I think is hilarious, because we have not... (laughs) yeah i thought that line was funny too and it made me confused because i know warp isn't invented until um i think it's like 2069 right or something like that it's like mid 21st century with and cochran so i was like how did they find a faster way to travel (laughs) maybe that was like the discovery of impulse in 2018. (laughs) that's kind of what i'm thinking yeah (laughs) yeah i don't know but to answer your question i i cannot answer it Except that I can imagine that Khan was the brains behind it because he obviously is their leader. He's the first one to wake up and everybody follows his commands. And I can see him having the foresight to know that World War III is not going to last forever. And maybe he knew, oh, this has an end coming, so I'm going to have a way out. So I can not die with all these other dictators who are probably losing power this time. But instead, I'm going to take the biggest chance of all. And just go to sleep and hope that I wake up somewhere that's not Earth. That we can have a life again. Which is a huge risk. But I, I think he probably had no other option. Yeah, Ashlyn, that's a really good speculation. I think also um, Khan is very capable of adapting to a situation very quickly. We see this in both, or in all everything that we're going to talk about that Khan is in. That he can quickly assess the situation, and then come, come up with a solution. And so he makes that makes him a really good leader, also a very deadly one. But I think that's why he was also able to understand the Enterprise's technology a little bit quicker, because he's like, well, I have to adapt to this new century. I knew that I'd be waking up sometime in the future. So he's just so smart. Like He really utilizes his surroundings and figures out how he can take them to his advantage yeah not only is he smart technologically with the materials that he has at his disposal but he's also fantastic at reading people and this is something that makes him also a very formidable villain because he can read a room like that and he he's very good at reading body language and also he's a very logical person and so he can put two and two together fairly quickly, much like Spock. And so I think this is the reason why Khan versus Kirk, and especially Khan versus Kirk and Spock, is such a thrilling match to watch, because they are absolutely equals in every way. Yeah, absolutely. Both physically and mentally. Like, or The way that McCoy describes Khan, too, I found to be really interesting. He says that McCoy has magnetism. and I think mm. that that's a really good word because he is very charming and he is able to manipulate people. He knows people well enough to know how to use them, like with Lieutenant MacGyver's. Yeah, she was drooling yeah. <laughs> the entire time she was with him. <laughs> I mean, she's a historian, so I understand that aspect of, like, this is the best specimen she's ever seen of like the past you know and truly someone who's lived in the past and lived during a tumultuous time in history so it's this whole combination it's kind of like when Spock it has a very fascinating you know science experiment that he's doing and it, it really enamors him or they find a cool anomaly or whatever so I totally understand her being so curious about him because just seeing him utilize his surroundings and ch- like chat people up it's very enthralling to watch it's so compelling and i just want to say that i also love history and love studying it and learning about it and so i can't lie like if i saw mozart waking up from that sleeper ship like oh i would freak <laughs> out maybe i wouldn't be like salivating because mozart's probably not i don't think he was that hot <laughs> <laughs> Well, Not on Ricardo Montalban le- levels. Yeah, I mean, he died when he was only thirty-six, so like, there's a good chance yeah. um, that he was looking good. But anyway, <laughs> I can really relate to Marlene in this episode, and man, she is absolutely charmed by him. And I don't know how I feel about Kirk and company talking about her. Um, like, interest in Khan. Like, I I think they were trying to ride the line of being professional about it, but it still felt a little out of place to me. Yeah, I agree. And they made her out to be sort of just daydreaming about Khan and, like... I I don't know, I feel like I saw more to why she was so interested and they just thought, oh, because she's a woman and she's like, there's a hot guy here, you know, and they didn't see past that into her also like very historic interest in him. Yeah, I agree (laughs) with you. We also learn that there are 72 other people that are on the sleeper ship and there were 12 malfunctions, so that you know that's like 90 people total that started on this voyage and 72 survive that's pretty amazing yeah so I want to talk a little bit about the first scene that we have with Khan once he has awoken because he's in sickbay and McCoy has been helping him and McCoy is very impressed with his body because (laughs) he's the better version of all of them I don't know like his his organs are strong (laughs) Well, and he's healing very quickly, too. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so I thought it was very telling that he sees the medical tools on the wall and instantly thinks to use that as a weapon. And then when he hears McCoy's voice making his log, he goes back to bed and hides it. And I love how badass McCoy is in the scene. Khan sticks that knife or whatever it is to his throat. And McCoy just says, you better do me a favor and cut the carotid artery right now. If you're going to kill me, you know, I'm just your doctor. Literally, I love that. And Khan says to him, I like a brave man. So it was sort of this moment of respect and of knowledge and of acknowledgement that both of them had sort of. A different type of upper hand here. It was such a cool interaction and really set the tone for the rest of these interactions Khan was gonna have with Kirk's crew. Yeah, absolutely. I had a little question for you. So it's impossible to avoid the M directive, like breaking the directive in this situation. Um, because technically Khan and his crew are pre warp. Right. How I mean it's like impossible to you know, because it's like yeah. the Enterprise saved them. Yeah, they're gonna clearly see <laughs> that they're like on a starship. <laughs> like it's gonna be pretty obvious. Yeah. You know, that's a good question. I I think in those situations, I don't know if they had training for this, but at least in those situations, they probably had like miscellaneous training, and they're like, if these random things occur, <laughs> here you can probably just break it. <laughs> I feel like they wouldn't have that training in Starfleet until like until at after Kurt. Least- <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say until, like, Janeway's a captain, like, much later on. (laughs) use all of their mistakes as examples of what not to do. (laughs) Yeah, but anyway, I just wanted to point out that technically they are pre-warp. So really good point, I didn't even think of that. I also thought it was interesting that Khan was an engineer, so... You talked about like how he's automatically, seemingly good with the technology. It's, he was an engineer in his past. And so I think that is always a good background for potential leaders to have, especially when they're in space. Yeah, <laughs> very good. I agree. And I also want to talk a little bit about the conversation that Kirk has with Khan, because there's an amount of mystery to him that makes him very compelling as well, because he doesn't answer... Kirk's questions right away. He waits to give his name to sort of build up the drama, I think. And also because he's keeping everything very close to the chest. And so it's fun to see Kirk and Khan sort of dance around this where Kirk's like, okay, here's how... Like, I'm also withholding information. Here's how much I'm willing to give. And Khan's doing the same. And they continue that sort of strategy when they have him as a guest at dinner. I love that scene because Spock is just so relentless and interrogating Khan and wanting to get his answers and he's also really good at getting to the truth and getting to Khan's sort of more inner self because at one point Khan gets so angry that he just says uh we offered the world order (laughs) you know so he gets really angry he said he wanted to like remold remold the world it really started to show his hand when Spock was interrogating him like that yeah, I think he can already deduce that Khan is a very emotional and passionate person. And so I'm sure that's what he was doing during this interview was, what buttons can I press to try to get the response that's going to make him be honest about his identity? And Khan even points it out that This whole time, Kirk is just sitting back and watching and looking for weakness, is what Khan says. Yeah. Yeah, I love this scene because it is so unique to Star Trek. We don't get to see, like, too many scenes with them in their dress uniforms, which I love, all of them. So So the fact that they went all out for dinner and gave Khan, like, those orange plastic cubes for dinner, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Those those food cubes. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's really cool, and it sets us up as a... uh, an audience and Con up to think, oh, this is a occasion they don't suspect Con in any way. Fascinating to see how quick Con can catch on yeah <laughs> con, con. that that rhyme <laughs> perfect way to end that yeah they should have called they should have called spacey con catches on <laughs> and catch on he does because halfway yeah. through the episode he already has the enterprise and his clutches and he has all the of the main officers in like the ready room when they're captured and they have Kirk in a air compression chamber. What is it, air? Yeah, it, uh, it's like a, it like smooshes him, I think.
1: Um, no, I think like,
0: it like takes his air away, right? I thought it was like a, I have it like, in not here. Not a trash compressor. No, no, no. <laughs> like um, like it, it puts pre- a pressure chamber, I think. Medical compression chamber. So who knows what it's doing to Kirk. Okay, well, we don't know what a medical compression chamber is, (laughs) but maybe it's doing something to Kirk. I mean, he's very sweaty in that tube there. Yeah, he is. (laughs) 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 Well, and the reason Khan does this, I mean, obviously he wants the Enterprise, but the reason he puts Kirk in the container is because he initially said he was just going to take oxygen from the bridge and turn off life support. And then when they all just passed out from that and he was able to take command and everything he said to the group later i was foolish to think that having you all suffer through something together would make you weaker when it made you stronger so i'm going to then you know then he shows them kirk and is like it's much easier to get people where they have to watch other people suffer and i'm like whoa he really knows how to break people he really knows how to get into the psyche of people. And yeah, he's prepared to kill every single one of them. And all of them are just holding, you know, holding stiff and saying, like, you can't get to us in this way. But it's still obviously a very powerful and dangerous method on Khan's part. Absolutely. And he also says that Another mistake he made was holding the captain captive, Mm, (laughs) having all these weird alliteration rhyming (laughs) moments in this episode. Um, But (laughs) holding the captain captive in the tube, in the cave—no, just kidding—in the capsule. (laughs) That actually encouraged the crew to perform other acts of heroics, and they continued to say, "I'm going to stand up to Khan. I'm not going to give in to this power play that he's trying to pull." And, um, <laughs> sorry, this alliteration. I have Power, to play. <laughs> Power play. Power play, <laughs> he's trying, trying to pull. pull. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, anyway. So, obviously, this is not quite a situation like what happens at the end of Wrath of Khan, where uh, Spock sacrifices himself. But I don't think Kirk is mad about being locked away here. I think he would definitely rather die than have the rest of the crew die obviously and so I think this is just another moment like we've been talking about throughout where Kirk wants to take it all on his shoulders and he wants to sacrifice himself for the crew when Spock you know performs similar acts of sacrifice it's it's learned behavior because of what Kirk continues to do over and over and over again you're absolutely right he has such a strong influence on the crew and his actions do spur them into action and it spurs even MacGyver's into action because we see her path is very interesting in this one because we see her first be enamored with Khan, but sort of withholding understandably because he's kind of creepy. Like your hair looks better down all this stuff. Yeah. And then, but then he goes to her quarters and they're looking through all of her paintings of these strong, powerful, Uh, Men like Napoleon and all these big leaders, which they love talking about Napoleon all the time. So they're yeah, they're so drawn to him. But so is she, and she's drawn to Khan in this way. (laughs) (laughs) Drawn to Khan. (laughs) Star Trek the (laughs) fourteen. Drawn to Khan. (laughs) He is very firm with her and says. Like you were either with me or you were my enemy. <laughs> Just kidding. This is a Star Wars podcast. <laughs> uh, no, he he says I don't want you in here if you're not going to be a hundred percent in. I don't want you at my side unless you are going to literally willing to do anything for me and otherwise you're wasting my time essentially and he really you know says what he wants and he gets it because she doesn't want to leave him and doesn't want she's willing to uh betray her whole crew for him so then when she goes to see Kirk you know it's like it's a interesting moment of change that I didn't think she was going to commit to when she already committed to Khan yeah I think that she was committed to Khan um um, as long as long as he wasn't going to murder her, Captain. You know, yeah. like she she even stands up for Ahura when Ahura's uh, is being forced to turn on the uh, like the TV, yeah, essentially, <laughs> and uh, and open up communications with Khan, who's hang, hanging out in engineering, right? Yeah, yeah, with with Kirk in the cube <laughs> or in the capsule. <laughs> um, anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, I I think that she. In this, in this scene where he's in her quarters, and she does pledge her loyalty to him, I think it was to a point, you know? Yes. I don't think she knew at this point that Khan was murderous, because this was before he started gassing the crew. It's true. And I think she definitely regretted that, but she still chooses to go with him at the end. And I know that her choice is either a court-martial or going down on the planet with Khan, where they're gonna be exiled to. So I still think I might rather be court-martialed. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, my answer at the beginning of this episode was that I do wanna run away with Khan, but I am i mean, so <laughs> yeah. I'll just say that. Like, If I had to run away with anyone, it's Khan, everyone knows. But yeah. if I was actually in a position, I don't think I would go down to the planet with him, but I also can't blame her. You know, she's into him. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can't really blame her either. I think that court-martial sounds pretty terrible. But also, she didn't know what was going to wait her. Her fate really um, did not go the way that she planned, <laughs> sadly. Um, but there's one more thing I do want to discuss, and it's the discussion that Kirk and Scotty and McCoy and Spock have about Khan. They're discussing his power and various tyrants during this time. He Kirk says that he was a ruler from 1990 to 1996, and he was, quote, the best of tyrants. <laughs> so Spock is appalled by this. He is floored. He, at one point, he literally looks at all of them, because they're talking about, yeah, like as far as tyrants go, he was pretty benevolent and like all this stuff and Spock he never killed unless he had to there was never any war under his rule this is all the points that they're bringing up yeah Yeah. and Spock turns around everyone he's like gentlemen (laughs) he's like excuse me what do you mean you're defending this tyrant and of course they all like are laughing and they're like we can admire admire him or we can like revere him and also understand that what he was doing was wrong and it's just such an interesting conversation Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like Khan is some of these, you know, like Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini or anything that, like, we even talked about (laughs) earlier in this episode. Like, wow, I can't believe. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I guess this villain series, we might have a lot of these kind of discussions. But very true. Yeah, it seems like he was, uh, you know, could have been worse. And I love that scene with Spock. That's, I, I mean, I probably have said this about every scene, but that scene is actually one of my favorites in this episode for sure. Yeah, it's so well done. So I also love the end scene of this episode because that is where Kirk has decided to maroon them on City Alpha 5. That's an important name, everybody, so lock it in your head. (laughs) City Alpha 5. Yep. And Kirk gives them the choice. Do you want to be marooned? Or face trial, and of course Khan takes the way out to to be marooned down on the planet, and he says, "I, I understand Milton because I've been reading Milton recently. this. <laughs> I had written in my notes, Milton question mark Rihanna help me exclamation point, but then Scotty asked the question I was wondering because Scotty says." Um, Well, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I'm not quite up on my Milton. So what's going on here? And Kirk says the quote that Khan was referencing, which is, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Mm. And this is absolutely Khan's, his foundation. (laughs) Yes, 100%. Spock says at the end of this episode, it would be interesting to go back in 100 years and learn what crop has sprung from the seed you planted today. And it's like they knew they wanted to make a movie. But they didn't. I know. It's incredible. That's what's crazy. Well, I think they are uh, definitely setting up for a possible, like, different episode in, like, uh, the next season or something. Yeah. Obviously, we never return to Khan until the movie. But uh, it never hurts the writers to plant (laughs) a a space seed like that. for for the future <laughs> good one ash i love those space scenes this episode particularly just incredible fantastic and you know what spock never returns to city alpha five but you know who does is check off in not a hundred years in only 15 years after this episode takes place the sweet check who we don't know where he was in the actual Space Seed, but Khan says, I never forget a face. <laughs> yeah. I <will> check off. <laughs> um, Walter Kennig had a quote that he said, I think during a convention or something, because a fan asked him where was Chekhov during Space <laughs> Seed, because obviously he was he had not joined the cast at that point yet. And Walter Kennig says that, Chekhov was in the bathroom, and Khan happened to walk in on him, and that's how they met. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. It was really amazing, I just gotta say, because how I framed my watch list for to prepare for this podcast was to watch Space Seed, then wrath of khan back to back yes and and then i'd watched into darkness immediately after that so it was like khan city baby it was <laughs> great and it was also jarring to see Chekhov interacting with khan so much because he hadn't been in the episode but i'm very forgiving and it's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah because it's the only person that could have been away from the enterprise it'd be weird if sulu suddenly switched ships or if scotty was down with <laughs> oh god this alliteration Brianna, this alliteration you couldn't have fit another s in there if you suddenly. had tried zulu suddenly switched, switched ships, ships. <laughs> oh my god i'm sorry please but, don't be sorry. okay okay but why would that be weird because he could see excelsior later maybe he could be on excelsior training right now maybe but we had just come from motion picture and that was non-continuity though no one talks about the motion picture <laughs> sure sure but, i don't think know. it's canon <laughs> <laughs> you can fight me i don't think motion picture was canon <laughs> i hope it wasn't <laughs> where no one ever talks about oh, remember decker no no who <laughs> yeah. remember that vulcan who any okay we have to save this for our movie series right. anyway <laughs> i don't know i just feel like it would be weird to have well i guess i i think it worked out mo it made most sense that Chekhov would be the one not there you know, yeah. like, yeah, everyone else has their roles on the ship and the way they start this movie is so good with them all doing the Kobayashi Maru, so you you know right away sort of who's going to be the main cast. Oh, there's Sulu. It's a lot of friendly faces, but they, I guess, need to check off elsewhere. Yeah, and I like that he's a commander now. He's Commander Checkoff, which I'm not surprised. He's a Russian whiz kid, so of yeah. course he's risen through the ranks so quickly, And I like Captain... I think it's Tyrell that he's with, too. Mm -hmm. I do not like the bugs in the ears. (laughs) No, I don't know who does because, I mean, they're disgusting. And clearly Khan doesn't like them because this this bug murdered 20 of his people, including MacGyver's. So this is what Mm. we were talking about when we said that MacGyver's maybe should have chosen court-martial because this was... It's a horrible way to die. You, uh, I didn't even think about that, Rihanna. Of course, yeah. yeah. Oh my, maybe, okay, so that's what you were thinking. I was just lost in a cloud. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, it's, well, it's a horrible way to go, too, because you you don't die instantly. You're first susceptible to suggestion, and then you turn mad, and then you die. So Ooh. Colin had to watch 20 of his people, including MacGyver's, go through this, because... City Alpha 6 exploded and literally only six months after Kirk marooned him there, marooned him and his crew there. So it shifted the orbit and made the entirety of City Alpha 5 decimated in this desert world. And the only remaining species to survive were these horrible bugs and Khan's crew. Of course, because they're genetically enhanced. So they can survive anything. (laughs) I was just shaken at how long that means like at how long that this poor crew has been living under these conditions they're definitely giving me like sand people vibes from star wars (laughs) and khan is angry he's had 15 years to ruminate on why he's down there and think about his whole history and how he was thriving back on earth and he risked it all here he is marooned in one of the worst places in the galaxy with one person to blame yeah and harboring all that for so long i honestly do feel for him a little bit in this moment and i think that's the sort of sympathy part we were talking about earlier is i can't imagine going through that for so long and assuming that people would come back or someone would come and make second contact or go and check up on them but no one did especially not yeah, kirk. the cerritos the cerritos was not around yet yeah <laughs> to, <laughs> they were not to doing... make second contact no definitely not <laughs> yeah he's just only been thinking about kirk and how he was abandoned by him and he was reading a lot of moby dick while he was down there <laughs> because oh boy does he quote it during this movie <laughs> <laughs> and literally the obsession standards are definitely up to moby dick standards <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah like Kirk, absolutely Kirk is definitely his white whale like oh my god <laughs> yes <laughs> but like not to be yeah. confused with the whales from from our uh, <laughs> <laughs> voyage home <laughs> this is a different whale <laughs> yeah there, <laughs> there's gotta be some kind of whale reference in every other star trek movie so <laughs> i mean, don't yeah, worry <laughs> don't worry picard will talk about it too so <laughs> you've got time <laughs> uh, um Ooh, yeah, So it's really interesting to see this revenge come to fruition because he uses Chekhov and Captain Tyrell to influence them and to get their ship and to lure Kirk into a trap using Carol Marcus and using the Genesis device. And his crew is very eager to just go and to leave and say, hey, why are we trying to trap Kirk? We have a ship, we have capability to leave that hellhole behind us like let's go and khan says he tests me he tests me and i shall have him and he Ooh. yeah it just i love that line and he has such a, a way with words and that is so creepy and sp- spine chilling i love him but it really is showing that he is relentless in this search for revenge yeah the it is the wrath of khan yeah. after all <laughs> it's right it's there in the title <laughs> yeah. i think it's interesting i also just want to make this point that in this movie khan is introduced 20 minutes after the movie starts and a lot of the time the point that your villain or antagonist is introduced. Is very impactful to the overall layout of the story for this one like we just mentioned the title's literally the wrath of khan and so you know going in i should probably watch spacey before if you're seeing this in theaters because i know that name khan let's figure out and you're you're already doing research just based off of the title or you just expect like a villain to appear so i understand why he appears so quickly in the movie and i think it's to the great benefit of the story because we have a great amount of time to reintroduce him to the audience and also as Rihanna stated we have some sympathy for him we totally understand his motive his goals and what he's trying to do and and i think that it makes for a very strong movie when all of that is played out so clearly And also, this movie's great because you could say the plot synopsis in probably about three sentences, right? Like, Khan is rediscovered, he attacks Kirk, they fight in a nebula, and... Kirk wins, you know, yeah. at great at great cost, Ooh. and um, <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> but but that's it. There's not much that happens, and I think the beauty of this movie is the details that we get because we get to spend so many minutes with Khan on screen, and we get to see the amazing interplay between Kirk and Spock, especially when. Starfleet notifies the Enterprise that the regular one space station is in trouble, which is of course where Carol Marcus is and where the whole crew is that's building the Genesis device. Of course, the Enterprise is the closest ship in the quadrant. They go out. They have a fantastic scene when they're facing off with Khan because he's demanding, "I want to see the specs of Genesis. Tell me what Genesis is," and having the countdown, the whole villain thing. Yes. Like, and uh, Kirk and Spock are just reading each other so well they're communicating non-verbally a lot of this time and yeah. kirk has his cute little glasses and he's like i'm getting it for you now con <laughs> <laughs> the best part <laughs> so cute yeah oh i love this scene and it really shows yeah like you said their strength as a duo in order to fight against someone like khan but also this shows khan's cunning <laughs> how many steps ahead he's always thinking because i don't know if he knew about the connection of carol and kirk probably not because like that's not you know written out in starfleet but it just so happens that he utilized her as well as a way to for kirk to to come and he did everything he knew would work on kirk to get him out to regular one so it's really brutal to see because I also really love, I gotta say, the reveal when Kirk knows that it's Khan after the ship is being crippled and everything and Khan comes on the screen and Kirk is like, Khan! You know, and there's that dun dun dun, it's so it's so chilling and so well done, and also reminded me because uh, Khan said something along the lines of "I wanted you to know it was me," <laughs> and so it was very Game of Thrones like. You know, <laughs> what's her name, Olenna? <laughs> like, Olena. Yeah. Oh, I just thought that was really funny and um, very dramatic on Khan's part as usual. Well, this is a very dramatic moment. I mean, Khan is probably the worst villain they have ever encountered on their five-year mission. And so to see him back again after knowing for certain that there's no way he could have escaped from City Alpha 5 is astonishing. And I, yeah, I love that moment as well. I also think that, so didn't talk about this in Space Seed, but the only reason that Khan lost in that episode is because he didn't have as much knowledge of the Enterprise as obviously Kirk and Spock and the senior officers do. This is the same problem that comes up again in this movie, because Khan does not know that you can raise or lower shields between other Federation ships. And because Kirk and Spock know that, that's what they're trying to do, is lower the Reliant Shield so they can fire back at them. And that's very important knowledge to have. Seriously. And this is what's crippling Khan. Um. <laughs> <laughs> During this, it's not anything that he could have prepared for. It's not like there were manuals he could have been reading the last 15 years. So this is his only weakness. Well, and his obsession. Yeah, <laughs> um, His poor judgment around his obsession. But... I think it would be so much more terrifying and there's no way that our crew would be able to win if Khan knew exactly how to work the ship. Oh god no, that's way more terrifying and uh, something that I think they also did so well with Khan is they demonstrated his pure evilness in this movie with the fact that once they arrive on Regula one, most of the Scientists there have been slaughtered and Ugh. like strung up, and they're like finding bodies everywhere. And it turns out that he tortured them, and none of them broke. So none of them even told him where the Genesis device was to the end, even though he was just absolutely brutal with them. And this scene is, I think, under talked about because they really s- sort of sweep over all the characters. Are like, well, we can't unpack that trauma. Like we have to keep moving, and so they don't talk about it again. But I mean, especially for someone like David, who's there helping his mom, and all of these lab members are probably his friends, and they're all probably very close from working on Genesis together. So this really demonstrates the brutality of Khan and makes him far more terrifying to me than just him yelling cool lines at the screen. This really demonstrates his power and his ruthlessness. Yeah, well, and... It also adds to his anger because he realizes that there's not a trace of Genesis anywhere on the station. And he doesn't know why. And so that's why he's torturing the scientists. It's like, where did you put the data? Why can't I access it? And these are scientists. These are not Starfleet either. Mm -hmm. David is very anti-Starfleet these are not Starfleet people. I'm pretty sure these are all scientists who are passionate about developing the Genesis technology and are either volunteering or like working with whatever company or uh, research facility that Carol Marcus is involved in. Yeah. And so these are people who are just passionate about science and passionate about creating life and they're rewarded with death. It's so yeah. Dark, and I think one of the darkest moments in Star Trek history. Honestly, I mean, there's a lot of dark themes, you know, that happen, but we don't often just see bodies hanging from the rafters. Yeah. Or Chekhov and his captain were like shoved in a like a locker. Yeah. With the bug still in their ears, so horrifying. Oof, he's yeah. he's just the worst, and I think it is a great way to remind the audience that don't feel too bad for Khan because he will murder you. (laughs) Yeah, and not think twice about it either. The conclusion of this movie, oh my god, so well done. It just really, you know, gets me every time. But I do want to talk a little bit because you said, you hinted that the fact that Khan's, one of his weaknesses is his thirst for revenge drives him over the tipping point. And we see this really change when he chooses to go after Kirk into the nebula and also when one of his right-hand man or whatever when he dies that like triples his need for revenge and really makes him want to desire to kill Kirk and he will do anything but which is just crazy because before he was so devoted to his crew so loyal to them he was always making sure that they had good lives and he saw so many of them die that to just throw their lives away like this t- to kill Kirk. Ooh, it's chilling and it's it really shows his weakness and I I also just it bugs me because Khan is very cocky and he's very he's so egotistical and everything that he thinks he can defeat Kirk no matter what and because he has he got a hold of the genesis device and he's ready to send it out as his act to destroy Kirk and so there's a moment, though, that maybe we think he might hold off and he might not go into the nebula because his crew are like, if you go in there, we'll be blind to our sensors, we won't know where they are, we'll have to navigate that and we could die, like we could, you know, get killed. And there is a point where they slow down. But then Kirk turns on the screen and he totally goads Khan. And at first I'm thinking, oh, this is a good way to lure him into the nebula to get him to be even more crippled by losing his sensors and everything but what he should have done is got out in the nebula like (laughs) on the other side and go and get starfleet or something because this was not a smart move on their part this was not something that kirk should have done i think if he were thinking clearly and not also hellbent on revenge and hellbent on being the one to victor over khan then it probably would have saved Spock's life. And I mean, this is what Wrath of Khan hints at the whole movie, is the fact that Kirk has never actually faced death. And so he's very cocky himself about that. And so him and Khan make quite the pair because they're both just vying to get at each other and they both sacrifice huge things to win over the other. I totally agree with you and i actually had not thought about that before and you're totally right if kirk had just escaped he could have gone back to starfleet regrouped and then warned everybody hey khan has control of the reliant let's go back with reinforcements i don't know if communications were out or working or whatever it would have been way easier just to have escaped through the nebula and let and let khan get away So thank you for making that point, Rihanna. I've never thought about that. And you're totally right. So throughout this podcast so far, I've been really thinking about how all of these villains bring out something different in Kirk. In Khan, you're absolutely right. I don't think Kirk is as obsessed with revenge as Khan is. Yeah. But it is a weakness for Kirk. And I love what you said about that. Thank you. Yeah, I just really want to applaud Ricardo Monteblan for his performance in these two incredible pieces of fiction. I mean, Khan is partially who the incredible villain and character that he is because of Ricardo Monteblan's acting and just the way that he becomes Khan in this very deep way is so cool to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way that Khan dies, his last words are so intense and so amazing. Um, Yeah, oh my god, I love his last lines. Um, He says to Kirk, or like when he's dying on, on the screen or whatever, and he says, To the last, I grapple with thee. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee oh Oh. (laughs) it's so powerful and i honestly thought he was quoting shakespeare before i knew that it was moby dick because it sounds just so shakespearean (laughs) so shakespearean villain um yeah i mean Herman Mervell wrote Moby Dick and I didn't realize that was from it either until I looked it up and oh my god does it make sense (laughs) like this is literal perfect explanation or perfect definition of Moby Dick is this movie and I'm really glad that you mentioned that earlier Ashlyn because it's really cool that they use that quote it's such a it's such a powerful one and like with Khan's literal last dying breath he hated Kirk to everything he had that hatred literally killed him. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Mm-hmm. Um, the end of this movie, you know, Spock sacrifices himself. It's one of the most heartbreaking scenes I ever yeah. uh, can imagine, and I cry every time. Literally <laughs> same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm glad we don't have to go into it now, because we have a movie series coming up. It gets closer every day you don't know quite when it will be in the lineup but it is definitely coming at some point we are so excited for that one yeah so we'll spare the details but our last movie we're going to talk about tonight is star trek into darkness which is the second of the jj abrams films in the Kelvin timeline. So we are in a completely different timeline now, one where Khan was found earlier because of the destruction of Vulcan. So this is a very significant point. Because Vulcan was destroyed, more ships were sent out further into space to try and find a planet that would be suitable for new Vulcan and to colonize. And so Marcus, Admiral Marcus, ran into Khan's ship into the Botany Bay and found and awoke Khan and utilized him as a weapon essentially so this is what would have happened if kirk hadn't run into khan yeah it's really wild to think about especially because khan in section 31 seems like the scariest thing that's like the worst choice you could possibly make yeah um put yeah a little hit- weapon like in the head of a very dangerous organization absolutely and i was just saying that the last thing we need is a con that understands the technology (laughs) yeah and here we are (laughs) Yeah, we're just handing it to him last time i talked about how con entered it 20 minutes in Mm -hmm. in this movie we see uh john harrison right from the beginning but we don't know that it's con until an hour and eight minutes into the movie and the runtime is only two hours and eight minutes so Rihanna, what do you think about this difference and about knowing that it's Khan later in the movie? Yeah, I think it takes away some of my interest in John Harrison as a villain because up to now we don't know his motivation, we don't know why he blew up the archive except for the fact to get a bunch of admirals together so he could blow up the Admiralty and kill Pike and all this stuff. But we don't know what is going on and why he's fleeing to Kronos and all of these things. So I guess they're trying to build up the mystery. But the problem was, is that when this movie came out, it was like, leaked right away that Benedict Cumberbatch's character was going to be Khan and not John Harrison. I read an article that said it was the worst kept secret of 2013. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) wow, that sounds right. (laughs) Like literally it was so fast where people found out. So it really took away sort of the surprise factor and the magic of that for me. And I think that like it would have been way more effective if he had played maybe someone else who was on the ship, on the Botany Bay. Like, maybe not the leader. Like, maybe if Khan had been killed, say, in reawakening from the cryotube then it could have been another one of the 72 members who are asleep and that would be so cool it'd be kind of divergent so i kind of wish that would happen or i saw in the same article the den of geek article um said that a lot of rumors were going around that he would be playing gary mitchell and i think that would have been really amazing oh that would have been so cool he (laughs) he kind of looks like him and this is my other problem is the fact that Every one of these other cast members is played to look someone almost exactly like them, but maybe a little younger in these reboots and in this alternate reality. But they got a white man to play a a, a character who is Mexican-American. And so that just made me pretty mad because I'm like... Yes, you can't recast Ricardo Montalbán, but you can get somebody, a person of color, to play Khan to continue the tradition. And it just really didn't make any sense, I guess, because Benedict Cumberbatch was the hot new actor at the time, and they wanted more ratings or whatever. But, you know, this is nothing against Benedict Cumberbatch. It's just not the right role for him to play. I think that it, yeah, just sort of cheapens it that they whitewashed him in that way. Yes, I had every thought that you said, I had while I was watching the movie... I was confused why it was a white con, And I think it would have been a much stronger movie if it had been about Khan's first-in-command, who we see in Space Seed and we yeah. see in Wrath of Khan. I think that would have been a stronger... Choice because his name we don't even know, or and it's not memorable, and he still could have been a very powerful, like mutant human. He's <laughs> been product of the eugenics wars. Yeah, I feel exactly the same as you on yeah. this one. I do like though that this gives us the opportunity to see the crew of the enterprise kind of an alliance with Khan for part of this movie and that is something new that is really intriguing to me and I love the scene where Scotty and Khan and Kirk have done this insane space jump from ship to (laughs) ship which is just so unbelievable and cinematically beautiful but like they're definitely all dead after, (laughs) after attempting this for real um but JJ J. Abrams had to get his cool scene in, so yeah. I understand. But I like that Scotty has no idea what's going on and doesn't know who Khan is and but he also kind of respects and admires him. Yeah. And and <laughs> do you remember the quote? There's something funny that Scotty's. He's says like, Hi, scene. you're big <laughs> 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 Simon Pegg again stealing the show, making every scene that he's in absolute perfection. Also it seems like some, this is not a big deal at all and not con related but it, in this movie it seems like Scotty went from a bar to stealing a ship to breaking <laughs> into section 31 to meeting con i think this was like in one day literally <laughs> anyway yeah i love the dynamic in this and i also am interested to see that kirk doesn't trust him and he tells scotty as soon as we get to the bridge drop him as in like stun him because we don't want him jeopardizing this mission yeah, I really wish they had done more research or, like, had, I don't know, McCoy, did he scan him and be like, oh, he has crazy regenerative abilities, maybe bring a heavier stunner or, you know, I don't know, maybe have some well, precautions in place. I mean, McCoy did get a blood sample from him when mm-hmm. he was first prisoner and we see him testing it on the tribbles. That's right, yeah.
1: <laughs> Apparently, Khan's so-
0: blood can bring people back to life now, that's a thing khan has magic blood. Magic blood. Magic Con mm. blood. Ah. Uh, mm. Sure. Got, I mean like, this Harry is Potter blood pr- protection qualities, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> this is like this is how the movie starts is the movie's telling us right away that khan has magic blood, so get ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I think you're right. Kirk definitely doesn't trust him and a part of this is because well, and I clearly Spock doesn't trust him either because Spock contacts Prime Spock and he contacts Leonard Nimoli and they have a little yep. FaceTime. <laughs> um, and he asks him, he says, Did you ever encounter a criminal named Khan? And Spock is like, That is the single most dangerous adversary we've ever faced. And um, Spock was like, How did you defeat him? And he said, At great cost, you know? <laughs> so once again, mm. we're seeing this. Uh, beautiful foreshadowing going on, which with all of us assuming that Spock's going to be the one to sacrifice. But anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. I just think that this scene is cool because we get to see Prime Spock, which is great, and then we also get to see him thinking about Khan again, and sort of you can even see it in his, in his face that he's like, "Oh my God, if my counterpart is facing Khan, like I have to arm them with everything I have, even though you're he don't, he's not supposed to tell them about the timeline." In case it interferes with theirs. But for this, he's made an exception because Khan is so dangerous. Spock is upholding the temporal prime directive even when it's not necessary to. Literally. (laughs) Like, he's trapped in another universe, so it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) But he's a good Starfleet officer. Oh, yeah. Yeah slash ambassador literally so good yeah i loved seeing nimoy react to this because every star trek fan wants to see this reaction you yeah. know they want to see older versions of characters reacting to things from episodes past and seeing nimoy so shocked to be hearing khan's name again was just mm. Classic chef's Perfection, kiss. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to talk a little bit about the similarities in personalities between the two cons here because both of them are absolutely emotionally manipulating Kirk the first time they can. Benedict's con is definitely trying to appeal to Kirk's emotional side and saying, These are my crewmates. All I want to do is save them. And obviously, this is a little bit of acting done, you know, like he's trying to play it up, but also Khan is absolutely committed to saving those people because he's a hostage to, uh, to Marcus essentially. And all he wants is freedom for himself and the rest of his crew. Yeah. He plays Kirk like a fiddle in this scene, like Ricardo Montalban does in space mm-hmm. seed. He's very good at manipulating his way into people's hearts and, I think that this is where Benedict Cumberbatch's acting is at its best is in this yes. scene when he's talking about his crew and he turns to Kirk and says, is there anything you wouldn't do for your crew? And putting it back on him and saying, this is who I'm trying to protect. And that really appeals to Kirk because he understands captain to captain type thing. He also tells these little white lies to get Kirk into trusting him because he says that he was genetically engineered so as to lead others to peace in a world at war, which is just not true. He was genetically engineered in order to control people in a world at war. And, you know, I mean, he he tells those lies in order to get Kirk on his side, and he gives some... Wait, I'm sorry. When is that stated, though? That he, like, was it ever... Do we know for sure he wasn't bred out of peace? Well, I mean that's a good point, but he clearly didn't. <laughs> maybe I'll put it that way. <laughs> either way, yes, maybe he was engineered to bring peace, but I don't think. He but he didn't. Peace. He didn't actually. So I mean, either way, that's like the point. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. I yeah. I just <laughs> I was just really like, yeah. I was just very excited to know this piece of trivia I didn't know. But okay, nope. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he really plays it up. So he says that Admiral Marcus wanted to exploit my savagery. And that's Mm -hmm. why he used him for Section 31 as a top agent and why he was using his crew against him. I mean, so Admiral Marcus put his crew in torpedoes to say, if you don't do as I say, I will kill them. And Marcus was sort of this secondary villain all along, one that we didn't expect and something that was a bit of a plot twist. And I don't know, Ashlyn, how did you feel about this fact that Marcus ended up being a bit more of a villain and sort of adjacent to Khan in this way? I mean, it's it's kind of my problem with this movie is that there are too many villains. And while it was interesting to add the dynamic of an enemy of an enemy is my friend mm-hmm. type of thing, it's not worth it to me because i just felt a lot of whiplash although the scene where khan kills marcus is really awesome i mean it's like yeah it's terrible but you're kind of rooting for it because marcus is a terrible person and you know khan is super strong he really pulls a mountain another game of thrones reference where (laughs) he's like Squeezing his head and like cr- breaks his neck. Yeah, it is really insane. Khan is just lit- murders him so hard, <laughs> um, and but I I just felt like that was a climax that was too early, you yeah. know. Okay, so yeah, Khan kills Admiral Marcus and takes control of his terrifying Section 31 ship, which is just massive and can be manned apparently by one person if needed. So that's very useful for Khan. And He takes Kirk hostage and says, so this part, I was like, whoa, here's a parallel. I didn't realize until watching this movie for like the 20th time or whatever. He says to Spock, like, give me my crew or I'll kill your captain, all this stuff. And Spock is like, you cannot get your crew. Like, you'd have to come aboard here and everything. And he's like, well... I can take the air out of your bridge and have you suffocating within minutes. My crew don't need air to survive and I will walk over your cold corpses to to recover my people. And so, I mean, you know, terrifying words, but also literally the same thing that Khan did in Space Seed. And so I loved this connection and something I hadn't ever realized before. Yes, Rihanna, we both are clearly having these same realizations because I wrote in my notes, suffocation vibes in both. <laughs> suffocation vibes wow <laughs> but con only suffocates people when it's the first time they meet not sure. the second. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's already played that trick so oh, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> i was proud of spock during this scene because he asked mccoy to remove all those bodies and so he did yeah. i mean they i shouldn't say like bodies like they're dead because they're <laughs> alive yeah they're so he, frozen Yeah, he removes all the humans from the torpedoes and then beams the torpedoes rigged to explode aboard Khan's ship. I, 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 you know, the Section 31 ship, but whatever. Yeah, it's a genius move, and um, it's something that, like, we don't, because Spock is in command at this point because Kirk is being held by Khan and everything, and then they're being beamed aboard to the brig and all of this stuff, and... Spock has to make this decision while Kirk is gone, and it's, yeah, it's very brave and really something that I wouldn't have expected Spock to do, which is exactly what they talk about after Kirk sacrifices his life and pulls a literal Spock Kirk is pulling a Spock who was pulling a Kirk. (laughs) I think you're 100% right. Spock's move earlier in Wrath of Khan, I think, was because Spock could last longer in there. Like, that was his only... Or, like, why Kirk didn't think of it first. And he happened to be hearing about engineering and had this idea. But I think you're absolutely right. Kirk was sort of there first. He was already in engineering and he made this spur-of-the-moment decision. Ashlyn, something you talked about before is him going at it alone when push comes to shove and when the the chips are really down. Yeah, it doesn't matter what universe Kirk is in, unless it's the mirror universe, but... (laughs) (laughs) For the most part, in all these, like, positive universes, Kirk is going to sacrifice himself. He's the one to save everyone. He's the one to save them all. And... And he, he does, and he dies, but don't worry, don't forget about the magic blood. <laughs> <laughs> forget about the Tribble that came back to life. <laughs> because yep, Tribbles have the same ph- physiologies as humans. so He, he wasn't dead, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, McCoy remarks a very similar thing that I was talking about earlier, where he says that that move you did with the torpedoes, it was very much something that Kirk would do and then I think it's Kirk or I don't know Spock or someone who's like well what Kirk did is something that very much I would do and so I love that they hinted at that like hey here is this role reversal yeah absolutely um something that we have not seen before though is Spock kicking the living crap out of con <laughs> and, and that was kind of a, a mind blower yeah. um so somehow, although not surprisingly, Khan survives the Section 31 ship, falling to earth, and Spock beams down to like chase him because he wants revenge yeah. for killing Kirk, even though Kirk sacrificed himself. Um, but you know, Spock's really angry and thank God her is there because she stops Spock from like totally murdering Khan. Yeah. Which honestly <laughs> If that had happened, I might have cheered. But also, like, <laughs> murder is bad. But but this is significant because Spock is a vegetarian. Once again, like, he is not about killing people, like we talked about with Gary Mitchell so yeah. long ago. But... <laughs> he has no hesitation and I think that does show you the differences that this Spock has endured because he's lost his mom, he's lost his planet he is definitely a more emotionally aware Spock than we have in the Prime Universe Yeah, I guess I should say he's more emotionally aware sooner in his life because Prime Prime Spock definitely becomes chill with himself around like TNG, late movies era Um, (laughs) (laughs) 100% But, but anyway Way, or maybe before. A- anyway. Yeah. yeah, I was just surprised to see this anger that Spock had. But also, Kirk had just died. So, yeah. I understand. I'm wondering, did Khan get taken into custody? Yeah, he, he didn't got refrozen. Die. He got refrozen. Oh, you got, i forgotten that. He got refrozen. Okay, so there. that's them just saying, okay... Uh, this is we're planning the space seed for the next one who wants to pick up con. <laughs> I know, literally, I feel like they were doing that, and I was like, oh, can we not? Like, <laughs> I think we've uh, beaten this dead horse already. Like, <laughs> let's leave it. I mean, not. I think that obviously I have problems with a lot of Star Trek Into Darkness, and there's parts that I really enjoyed, and yeah, I just think it's smart when they started moving away from ki- villains who we were repeating rihanna the thing you forgot is that the magical blood will save this dead beaten horse <laughs> so they can always bring khan back they can do whatever they want they can and they will well and khan is more powerful in every iteration i guess because he's very overpowered in this movie apparently these phasers can't put him down um <laughs> spock's vulcan pinch can't put him down and but but in space seed a a little pipe that kirk got from engineering he hit him like three times and he's down for the count don't even bring this up (laughs) i'm i'm laughing too much (laughs) like what okay so what's gonna happen when we meet Khan in strange new worlds you know what i'm saying even gary mitchell level (laughs) maybe uh pike will wake him up and then refreeze him and then wipe his memory so we can have uh an episode before space seed (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that would be something yeah um wow Unbelievable! We really just talked about Khan, we talked about Gary Mitchell, Nancy Trelane, Evil Kirk, kudos, and that Romulan lady, Brianna. This has been a joy. What evil people we have discussed today. I know, and I am really glad that we chose this list because I feel like they all have very different traits, and... It was fun to pick them apart, and I absolutely am so pumped to talk about our villains for next week's Next Generation episode. Oh, wait, boop, boop, maybe not boop, next week. Boop, boop, boop. Oh, yep, yep. I must interrupt my partying <laughs> um, <laughs> to say that we are gonna have to take a little break from the Dura sisters podcast. Because my husband's coming back from basic training, and I'm going to see my wonderful mom in Connecticut, who was on the pod two episodes ago, so if you haven't met her yet, you better go back right now and watch... It's not time-traveling meat. It's the one before Future, <laughs> future Man. <laughs> future Man, yeah. Yeah, you better go listen to Future Man, and then you'll understand that I'm having a great time in Connecticut with my mom. With our amazing Moogie, yes. Yeah, our amazing Moogie. And and then I'm going to be moving to Virginia. So this is all, you can blame me for this break. Um, we are recording this episode even earlier than we normally record episodes in preparation for this crazy week ahead. So if there is a little bit of time elapsing and you're missing your Dura sisters, Do not worry, we will be back and we will be talking about the Next Generation Villains. So hang in there. Please go check out our Patreon because we have a ton of content for you to listen on there while you wait. And you will enjoy it so much. You can donate any amount per month. Like... literally one (laughs) dollar per month and you can have at least a couple hours worth of podcasts to listen to that are not even on our main feed so yeah go check that out while you're missing us you won't regret it yeah and i think also as a treat i'll post the our watch list for next generation early so you guys can buff up and watch all those next generation episodes of the villains we choose before our podcast even comes out Whoa, posting it early? That is a mood. (laughs) Whoa, man. (laughs) So maybe I'll do that and give you guys a little taste and give you enough time to watch it, so that sounds great yeah rihanna what a pleasure to get into these twisted minds with you oh it's been amazing i had such a blast literally talking about con for like 80 minutes of this podcast i feel like i've been waiting my whole life to talk this long about con same yeah and thank you for coming on this very villainous ride with me and i'm very excited for next week absolutely thank you for listening to the dura sisters podcast Please tune in next time for the second episode of our villain series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the villainous episodes in Star Trek The Next Generation. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also, take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review and rate us five stars by donating any amount per month. You can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of lower decks, the animated series and star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreoncom slash the Dura sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura sisters podcast at gmail.com. Our intro Klingon Battle was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Worf's Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. Big news, Rihanna Banana. Today is the dear sister who passed away. Her birthday's today, and so I I made a couple posts about Joe Bacor, and, like, we released a plan today, so it's amazing. And then also, last big fact, somebody we don't even know commented on the Instagram post she made about uh, Kate Mulgrew, about the book, and said, love the podcast. So, wow, this is big news. We're really rolling. And I love you. And happy Friday.